if I had just been brainwashed into many acts of terrorism and I was unbrainwashed, I'd be like, man, I don't remember a blessed thing. It's all gone. What year is it? Is it 1992? Who's still? the president? X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Jordan Bloom, television producer, best known probably for his work on American Dad and Community, but for Marvel fans, most notable in the weeks to come as the co-creator of Marvel's MODOK, a new animated series debuting on Hulu May 21st, co-created with comedian, actor, and star of the violently underrated Charlize Theron masterpiece, Young Adult, Patton Oswalt. That was for all the gay listeners who know how sick it is that no one was nominated for an Oscar for acting in that movie. Jordan, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. And I absolutely agree with you. I think that movie is criminally underrated. Dynamite stuff. Yeah. I remember I got the screener and I, I think I watched it like three times in a weekend. I thought it was incredible. I saw it three times in the theater, actually. I was like, I need to call my psychiatrist. I need a drink. I, you know, it's a very, it's a very, very good movie. And it must be a treat to work with him. He seems like a fun guy. I've only ever heard good things. He's the nicest person I've ever worked with. Like he is, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I hope they're like the way they present themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he is exactly who you think he is. He is one of us, you know, we're, we're there every Wednesday picking up our new comics. That's one of the most fun things working with him is he's always suggesting new things to read. Of course. Well, it's a deep cut kind of show. I mean, just from the cast list, like any show where you have to know who not only Modoc is, but like Monica Rappuccini and like other characters who are definitely not major Marvel characters. You can tell that it's made by fans with a lot of enthusiasm for the material. And he's such hilarious casting for Modoc. I mean, if I were to pick like who should voice this character, I would probably have said to the cast director, like, a Patton Oswalt type. So having the actual guy himself, it's quite a coup, honestly. Yeah, he always says it's the role he was unfortunately born to play. Right, yeah. It's just yeah. Like, this, is, this is your lot. <laughs> you know, like, he and Charlize sort of did Young Adult and then went off on the paths that they were destined to, her as Imperator Furiosa and him as Modoc. That sort of feels correct, right? Absolutely. I would love to see him as a villain in like a Mad Max. Yeah, it'd be fun to reunite them for one of those. I think he'd be good at that. Honestly, he would have been a good mojo too. Like he has that energy, that kind of like he could play a good dystopian chatty guy in a way that would be obsessed with pop culture. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All that to say, thank you for joining me. I'm excited to be a tiny part of the press tour for this new show, which I am excited about. I reached out because when you did the tie-in miniseries for Marvel Comics, Modoc Head Games, you threw in a cameo by Sally Blevins, aka Skids, an obscure X-Men character, well, really X-Factor character from the Louise Simonson X-Factor, who has really never been cut a break. It's just such a deep cut 
of a character that I thought this is a guy who really loves X-Men in the same stupid way that I love X-Men, where it's like, let's talk about when Skids punched Infectia that one time. Like that's, (laughs) you know? Absolutely. I mean, those are the best characters, the ones that, you know, are kind of on the periphery or have like, you could tell they have all these amazing stories in them, but maybe they haven't been tapped yet. Exactly, right? So that charmed me immediately, and I reached out because I was like, there's no one else on Earth I can imagine would want to do a Skids episode, so why don't I see if this guy will do a Skids episode? And it took only seconds before you said, yes, I would love to do that, pencil me in, and we, I was like, okay, when's the I show was delighted. I was, I was so pumped. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> no one else will talk to me about Skids. So, right, right. You know? <laughs> I do think that a big part of the problem for Skids, unfortunately, is the code name. If you're unfamiliar with Skids, the one-sentence explanation is Skids is basically Madonna circa the Lucky Star video. She is a runaway who fled her abusive father and wound up with the Morlocks, but she's pretty, so even the Morlocks don't like her, and Mass can't make her face ugly like the other Morlocks because she has a frictionless force field, which is why she's called Skids. She can't turn it off. It's semi-permeable so she can, like, eat, but it's around her at all times. You can't grab hold of her. Everything just slips off her or skids right off her, essentially. Now, unfortunately, I think that a lot of people just think Skidmark, and it has become a bit of an albatross for her as a code name, unfortunately. Not fair. It, it just explains her powers. It's it's very on the it, nose. We're literally skidding, yeah. guys, you yeah. know? <laughs> but I do think maybe maybe a rebrand could finally yeah. bring her back around. But I don't know. I think she's always been fun. Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. has a good ring to it. Exactly. Just now that she's Sally Blevins' agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think that you could, I mean, really put her on X-Force. You've got this mutant CIA now, and she is a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. I'll talk about it later, but her power is really cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and kind of untapped. There's a few people who have kind of played with it. I would agree. We'll get into that. And we will get into that. But first, I would love to hear a little bit about your origin story with the X-Men, how you came to read these comics and love these characters, and ultimately why Skids spoke to you and why you threw her into that cameo, which we'll talk about when we get there, because it was a very funny cameo. I really enjoyed it. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Um, well, I guess my, my history goes back to the 80s, probably somewhere around Secret Wars, buying those issues Mm -hmm. and and buying the Wolverine toy that that was from that. But the first X-Men comic that I really remember was the Evolutionary War annual with the Art Adams. With Zaladane. With Zaladane. (laughs) You know, it's funny, the A story, I don't remember any of. You remember the B story with Mojo and Ricochet Rita. X-Babies. Yeah. And all the different versions of the X-Men that he was trying to make. And he kind of lands on the X-Babies. I loved that, and that was kind of my entryway, which led me to buying a lot of classic X-Men as well as buying back issues, but mm-hmm. those, having those, like, I used to get my comics from, like, the pharmacy newsstand, so I was able to, they, those were coming out, Yeah. so I was buying the newer stuff, but I was also getting that, and I remember I got that issue, it was the one right after the end of Dark Phoenix, where it's, like, the funeral the recap yeah yes and you get everything you get the silver age all the way through dark phoenix i think as a comics fan you know some people are turned off by continuity and i think x-men has the most tangled continuity and to me it was like the challenge it was so exciting to dive in and be like wait why is psylocke 
a ninja now and what's the siege perilous <laughs> i did that like- as the first episode of this podcast because it's the first question people ask me is what the fuck is up with psylocke and i'm like have i got a tale for you it's really dumb and weird and we'll get into it and they finally fixed it thank god yes but it's baffling some of the continuity because it's you know most of it is what it's claremont doing a 17 year run building on top of stories and, and doing this long form storytelling and i think that was so exciting. Something you can't have anymore in comics. No one is ever given that much free reign to build and shape an entire world over 16 years. It doesn't happen anymore. I mean, we can only hope that Jonathan Hickman has been given free reign over the X-Men for, I mean, I, let's do 20. I'm fine. As long as Jonathan's down, I'm down to keep rocking the way we're rocking. Did he claim, did someone say he has like 20 years of story that he can compact if he needs to, but like, He's got it in his pocket or something like that. My understanding is a three arc structure kind of plan. Mm -hmm. And that can go as long or as not long as Marvel wants it to. And based on how successful the relaunch was, it is now going longer than it had originally been pitched for, is my understanding. Because I think it was like, this could be a three year thing. And now obviously we're well into year two and we're still very early days in the story, I think. Yeah. Which is great because it's the, the best. Haul. Yeah, this is the best X-Men's been since we were toddlers. Morrison, probably, I would say. Certainly since Morrison, but I mean like line-wide. Yes. Because Morrison, that book was incredible, but... It was contained. Yeah, and it, there were other books coming out at the same time that were not incredible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, right now, this feels like going back to that evolutionary war era like late stage claremont simonson they're just in their bag doing the whole thing calling each other they know exactly what they're doing right before the big pre-image takeover that pushed them out i was going to relate it to executioner song era which i know people are mixed on i love which is kind of where i was getting to is that you know i love the x-men and then like jim lee 92 the Mm -hmm. cartoon it was like that perfect storm where it was like not only this is a comic I enjoy, this is my comic. Like, this is the thing I'm dedicating my life to. Like, I'm thinking about these characters, <laughs> you know, seven to eight times a day. But still, to this day, like, yeah. my wife will be like, hello, I'm talking to you. And we're like, what, what were you even thinking about? And I was like, I was wondering which team Bishop should be on, you know, currently. Right. And she's like, it's our kids are crying. Can you do something? Right. It's like, I'm thinking about X-Men team rosters. I'm thinking about unanswered questions from X-Men lore. I mean, I was a classics major in college, and I always was fascinated with Greek and Roman mythology. And I actually think that part of the appeal of the X-Men for me is that sprawling mythic mm-hmm. insanity of it. Like, yes, I can explain to you all the different generations of the Greek gods through Hesiod or whatever. And I can also explain to you the Summer's Grey family tree. Like that yes. is, you know, like that is fun and it's just as complicated. I think it's why people get so into Tolkien, which was never my thing, but it has that same kind of depth to it where you really could keep digging. just yeah. keep digging. Yeah, absolutely. And if anything, this podcast now on episode 35 that we are recording right now is a testament to that because I was like, this would be fun. And every week I'm just sort of like, yeah, let's dig deep into skids, for example. And it turns yeah. out, it always turns out that there's more under the force field than we thought, let's say. Right. So you were fully on board in the 90s. That Jim yeah. Lee moment obviously was huge for everybody. Yeah. 
were you reading all of the comics through the 90s? Like, did you keep picking it all up or did you fall off? From about that point forward, that I guess, was it Mutant Genesis? Is that what it's called? Yeah. It was every book. You know, Wolverine, I was kind of hot and cold on. Solo Wolverine has always never been. I like the team, yeah. you know? The team stuff. X Factor was my, probably my favorite back then. The Peter, the early the Peter, Peter David, David stuff. Yeah. X Force, I love. I had missed New Mutants because as a child, the Sienkiewicz covers terrified me. They're scary. Yeah, they are. Scary. And now they're it's my favorite book. Like mm-hmm. I've gone back and reread the whole series and those are my favorite characters. But I knew them more as X-Force, which is where I kind of met Skids. Right. And you would have been in the Niciesa period right after Liefeld and right before it all gets a little weird for a bit. Yes. And then it pivots into the road trip. I'm trying to think like X-Force is never my book. The road trip's great. Adam Polina art is some of my favorite art. The road trip is where Skids pops back up again, actually. Yes. Yeah. She's like, I'm in college. Leave me alone. Don't call me Skids. I do not want to be a mutant. Please leave me alone. I'm just vibing. I'm trying to pass my bioscience midterm. Like, I don't want to talk about this. But as a 13-year-old boy, beyond the comics and the cartoons and stuff, I was you know, one of three Jews in a predominantly Irish, uh, Italian Catholic. An eggshell town. That's what I call it. Everybody's white, but like not quite white enough for the country club. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a very similar town, although it was a lot more Jewish than that. It was like 50-50 Jewish and various Catholics. And it's funny because everyone thinks New York is very Jewish, but it just happened to be the town I grew up in in Westchester. Very close, by the way to the X-Men, because I lived near, um, I was five minutes away from North Salem. Yeah, so am I right now. I'm sitting right are now. Really? In, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are you? Oh, okay. I grew up in Somers. Okay. There, is Somers not Jewish? No. Well, when I was there, it was not. Uh, there wasn't a temple or anything. I always used to say, Scarsdale is where the really rich Jewish people live. Bronxville is where the really rich people who are definitely not Jewish, but not that there's anything wrong with that live. And then we're sort of right in the middle. Yeah, well, that's the weird part of Westchester. It's this it's like a patchwork. Yeah. Every town is different and they're just stuck next to each other. And like you drive five minutes into a new town and it has a completely different personality, you know, a different makeup. It's West. That's what's weird about Westchester. Yeah. Absolutely. And the X-Men originally in the 60s is very much like we're the Jewish kids in Westchester and we're not going to talk yes. about it. Like, yes, we're just going to shul. We only use our powers in private. We got to make sure that the other Jews are not causing trouble. That's the evil mutants. Like it was all. That's very much the subtext of the Stan and Jack X-Men and that I think it evolves very quickly into something else. Thank God, under Claremont. They don't really get it right until Claremont. Yeah, it doesn't really click until Claremont. (laughs) But it's, you know, it definitely worked because I was like, oh, this is a place I would be accepted and I would belong. Yeah, yeah. And it was literally around the corner. I mean, I found that fascinating that it was right here. Yeah. And it was like, it's so close. I would fit in there. Uh, yeah, so I think that... <laughs> I am Kitty Pride, right? Like, it had that, you know, there is that yeah. to it. And then I'm in. I'm in the club. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I loved that. And and then, um, you know, and they, even though they were, like, the best-selling book, they still felt like the underdogs because of how they were treated in the Marvel Universe, as opposed mm-hmm. to how well their, their books sold. And it was everywhere, right? Like, I remember being fan in the in the 80s and i'm like i just want some merchandise you know like i would buy the pvc toys i still have them they didn't move it was like archangel and right yeah um or or havoc or you know cable and stuff so it was like 
the heavens opened up and then all of a sudden X-Men figures were falling from the sky and they were everywhere and the cartoon was everywhere. And I sent you that picture. I had like the poster book. You did, yeah. I put up Love all that. over my wall. Yeah. If you're wondering how how I could relate to the X-Men, that kid clearly didn't have a lot of friends. If you're wearing a turtleneck <laughs> and, a, and a, a Mighty Ducks jersey and a beast hat and your room is wall-to-wall uh, X-Men poster. I identify with that though. My dad was an X-Men collector, so... I just grew up kind of like enmeshed in it already. And I was mostly reading the 80s. We did the like, so how old are you thing before we started recording? But I'm five years younger than you. So it's just, I'm that age right when the 90s stuff is hitting, right? Like Executioner's mm-hmm. yeah. Song and all of that. And I was more drawn to the 80s stuff, to the Claremont stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I think it was because it just got very macho in the 90s for me in a way that the earlier yeah. stuff isn't. And Skids is a casualty of that, certainly. Yeah, they, they didn't know what to do with her. Yeah, I mean, she's not the kind of character that X-Force is going to want to use in terms of the X-Force that Liefeld was writing. Right, totally. So is Mirage, who's actually my favorite ex-character she got more screwed than anybody i really do think that i mean i'd have to ask louise simonson but my guess has always been that they realized danny would never listen to cable ever right so if you're gonna bring in cable and rebrand the new mutants this way you gotta get danny off the page somehow but she never really managed to come back again until honestly like zeb wells yeah 20 years later like she was around but she was never as important again you could tell Fabian Nicieza had a plan for her and then he was off the book oh yeah he he was on this show and told me he did oh really <laughs> Yeah, he had a plan for her and a plan for Tempo, and then Uh, he got fired from the book. But they were both supposed to join the team at the end of that MLF arc. So close to getting her. Well, it's funny, uh, thinking about it now, before the 90s stuff, the book I was reading the most was X-Factor, like Louise Simonson Mm X-Factor. And it was the first one I ever collected, where I remember I saved my allowance for like two weeks and I got to go to the comic store and I always wanted to buy something off the wall. They would put like the first issues or stuff, you mm-hmm. know, up on the wall. So X Factor number one was my first big purchase. And I, that was like the first run I tried to fill in. So it makes sense that I ran into skids pretty early in that in that era. Yeah, because she pops up pretty early in it. She debuts in number seven. And at least for a while, she's kind of the kitty pride of that team. Like she is yeah. the teenage viewpoint. She is the person that we are identifying with as she gets sort of the introduction to the wider world because she's been with the Morlocks and doesn't really understand all of the complicated mm-hmm. mutant politics on the surface. It's sort of her and Rusty are like the characters that we're meant to care right. about, right? Do you think she was really bummed when Boom Boom showed up? Uh huh. Here's a character who dresses like me and has a much bigger personality that commands the room. Cooler powers. And how do I compete with that? Right. Like, that's my position on this team, and you're taking it from me. I was just about to say that not that much later, Richter and Boom Boom show up, and they are so much more dynamic as characters than Skids and Rusty are, because Skids and Rusty are... I mean, they're like star-crossed lovers, there's that, but mostly they're just kids who want to be normal and want to be left alone. And then you get Richter and Boom Boom, who have like a punk kind of aesthetic, who are doing a very like 80s counterculture, youth culture thing. They captured the fan imagination a lot more dramatically, and you can see, you can watch 
as Boom Boom fully just pushes Skids out of the way and becomes that character. Yeah. Skids and Rusty just get written out and Richter and Boom Boom move with the rest of the New Mutants to X-Force. And the rest is kind of history. Well, Rusty doesn't do her any favors. Like, no, not a, drags not her down take. like an albatross. Rusty sucks. And he sucked from day one. Yeah, I mean, he's hot. I get it. Like, I get where <laughs> she's coming from. He's literally hot, obviously, but also he's, you know. On fire and, and a gorgeous man. Yeah. yeah, he's a very beautiful man. He has that terrible costume that somehow, though, is Fire like, fist costume. Yeah, but it's kind of a sexy look. Like, it would look terrible in real life, but when he wears, like, these cargo pants over the X-Factor unitard. Because it's like, I don't know, I guess it's, like, gay to wear, like, a unitard. I don't know what his, like, thought process is, but he's, like, a Navy man. Yeah. You know? Which, like, talk about gay, but we don't think into it. (laughs) (laughs) I like, though, the the pants over the costume. I was like when, I mean, growing up in the 90s. I love when you, you love a jacket, jacket over a costume. He kind of yeah. predicted that, but with pants instead of a jacket. Yeah. yeah. He went the pants way. Yeah. He drags her right down into the mud because, first of all, he's a bit of a wet blanket. He is like rogue, but not fun in that his whole thing is, my powers are a curse, you know, like, and there's only so much. you. I mean, he has the same origin story as rogue, which is like, I kissed someone and I accidentally killed them. Right. Yeah. And he always wants to hand himself in. and he always Yeah, he's like constantly like, like, yes, Freedom Force, take me away. And it's like, no, Rusty. And, and she's like, oh, I got to go save you again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, what really is wild is the extent to which Boom Boom replaced her, like such that Boom Boom has the same backstory. Mm-hmm. Like powers catalyzed because of an abusive father. Like it's the same yeah. exact backstory. Can we dig into that? Because actually, I, rereading it, I was like, wow, this is one of those great like tragic origins where the powers really play in yeah 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 no so we can get right into it it's like a spin on batman right dad is is beating her because she's wearing her mom's pearls because like her great flaws she's she dresses you know she's a trendy dresser she's into fashion yeah yeah. and so her mother lets her wear a pearl necklace and she's like 14 or 15 or whatever and her father is basically like that's inappropriate you're a child you shouldn't be wearing pearls and he's an abusive drunk so he attacks her and her mutant power activates specifically to form a force field that will not allow him to harm her but instead he beats her mother to death yeah and then he flees and then she's trying to save her mother but she can't touch her her powers she can't touch her she can't lift her up and her mother dies there her mother just bleeds out next to her it's really honest this is x-factor 16 she's introduced in seven she's around for a while you don't really know her whole backstory why she was with the morlocks and then you get the backstory in x-factor 16 it's amazing art by dave mazzichelli well the thing about dave mazzichelli you have to mention right is he drew batman year one yeah which is the one that introduces the whole pearl necklace i think that's like the first time we see that right i'm not a batman expert i think that's where that got big so like if you have a tragic death of parent pearl necklace story david mazzichelli is the guy to draw it. yeah and what's horrible is like so skids her mother's dying on the floor she can't touch her mother and her mother says to her take the pearls and run because they're valuable right Mm -hmm. and she tries to pick them up but they're slipping between her fingers because of the force field that has just spontaneously activated it has saved her life but she like can't she finally manages to take hold of the necklace and run away with it and she's been wearing it all this time and we get the flashback because rusty breaks the necklace in the present once again proving that he's terrible i know 
and the pearls sort of scatter around the the it's not the danger room it's like whatever it's the x-factor equivalent in ship yeah. in ship yes which is their living spaceship don't worry about it we'll get to that at some point that should have its own episode that i one. know prosh <laughs> i mean he has yeah. a lot going on <laughs> so the pearls fall onto the ground and gene is like well, you know what? This is a great opportunity for Skids to test her powers. Um, Skids, why don't you get down on the floor and try to pick up these pearls? <laughs> Not knowing that that will trigger an unbelievable post-traumatic nervous breakdown right. because it makes her completely relive the experience of her mother dying. Yeah, not the best teaching moment from Jean. Now's not the time, Jean. To be fair to Jean, she wasn't telepathic at the time, so she couldn't know. Right. It's like fly. one of those rare moments where Jean can't just read everybody's minds around her for fun. And that leads Skids to the Morlocks, where she is the outsider of the outsiders. Yes. Right? Like she runs away from home and winds up with the Morlocks. When we meet her, it's like, why are you here? Because the Morlocks, as they've been introduced, Callisto is the most normal looking one. And she has facial scarring from an attack that makes her believe that she's ugly. The rest of them are physically visible, mutated people who are down in the sewer because they face oppression on the surface. She had nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. She's there out of necessity. It, on the one hand, is like, oh, so we feel bad for this Morlock because she's pretty, is a little bit like the... Yeah, it's like you she's know, the one passable, beautiful yeah. person down with these mutants who can't even walk down the street. And Mask hates her because she's beautiful and because Mask's whole deal is that he can reshape the flesh of anyone else with a touch but can't affect himself... And he is disfigured beyond, like, his mutation has made him basically just, he looks kind of like a pulled pork sandwich. Like, it's, like, very, his skin is all messed up. So the other Morlocks, as, like, a political statement, will have him give them some kind of visual signifier of their Morlockness. And it's become this peer pressure rite of passage thing they all do, but Skids, he can't touch. And that makes him furious because she's here in the sewers just being beautiful. Yeah. So it's the first place that she finds a new home and then doesn't fit in. And, and like, not to get too macro, because I know we'll get there. But, but that's, that's her life. The theme. Yeah. yeah. She it's goes all that from, ever happens to her. Yeah. She goes from, she's been on more teams than Wolverine. It, I looked it up. <laughs> Morlocks, X-Factor, the X-Factor kids. The Exterminators. Become the Exterminators. Right. New Mutants. The MLF, Mutant Liberation Front. Acolytes. She was a college student. X-Corps. 198. Yep. shield agent and now she's on Krakoa and it's like and never in most of these things for more than two issues no because she never fits in like she never is comfortable she's never found a place where she's been safe where she's been able to stay for very long it's pretty sad I mean she's just been running and running and running and because she's never had enough of a fan following to really keep her brand going the inevitability is that every new place she runs to for sanctuary eventually kicks her out because yeah. or she gets brainwashed or something right or <laughs> you know exactly she's very prone to the villain brainwashed me thing yeah. i do think part of her problem is that rusty dragged her down and then rusty got killed off they were so identified as a pair by that point that once he was dead, what are you going to do with her? Mm -hmm. I think was sort of the problem for a long time. Yeah. I mean, between the fall of Avalon and her popping up as one of the 198, I guess she's in X Corp briefly before that. But like, otherwise, there isn't really 
much going on with her. I mean, we catch up with her in the road trip era of X-Force and she's like, yeah, I'm not doing any of that stuff anymore. I don't use my powers anymore. I'm just Sally. Like, please, please leave me alone. Sorry, Skids, that never works out. Nope. We've seen we've nope. seen Kitty Pry, we've seen everyone else. It's the Havoc that. and Polaris special. It just never yeah. that is actually a great way to get brainwashed is to decide I am an X-Man no more. I am pursuing my degree. Pursuing your degree is the number one cause of evil brainwashing among mutants in the United States. Right? Polaris, Havoc, yeah. Like the worst thing you can do is to seek an education outside right. of Xavier's. Only yeah. our weird child soldier diploma from the creepy compound in Westchester. Those are the only <laughs> diplomas you're allowed to have. You may not pursue a bachelor's. You will be captured by the sorceress Pandemonia or whatever. <laughs> it's it's relentless. It's bonkers. But the place she fit in the most, where she had the longest run, was where we meet her. In X Factor. Yeah. Yeah. And and you said Madonna. People say more Cindy Lauper. Like we called her Madonna pastiche in in our Modoc comic. But mm-hmm. I've also seen people say, oh, like do you know specifically what that costume was referencing, or is it just kind of a general club kid '80s vibe? I think it's kind of a general vibe. A lot of leopard print. A lot of leopard print. It's early X Factor, so it's 1986. I feel like the look references that early Madonna, like 83, 84 kind of period. Like that's like like a Virgin era, right? It's Lucky Star, Borderline, Holiday, he celebrate. It's like that whole sort of era, <laughs> right? I do think Cindy Lauper's fashion sense is also part of it for sure. Like that's the same era, 83. Mm-hmm. As girls just want to have fun. I would say that the visual though of Skids as like a blonde with the little beret on is like very Madonna. Mm-hmm. But all of the uh, animal print definitely feels Cindy Lauper-y. It feels a little bit Pat Benatar at times. Love is a yeah. battlefield. Like it has that kind of energy. A lot of the young girls in the comics at that time had that kind of aesthetic because it was popular. I mean, that was sort right. of the, it was the style. Hence Boom Boom. Hence Boom Boom, who's very, very, very Madonna, much more so than Skids. I like, though, that her costume is so loud that it passes for a superhero costume. Like, when I was a kid, I wasn't like... Yeah, it's just clothes, but she looks normal next to everybody else. Yeah, it fit in with X-Factor perfectly. Mm-hmm. Especially given the colors, right? Because it's like this bright red and purple and orange And the X-Factor costumes are these very bold, color-blocked unitards with sort of an X, and they all have an identifying color that they then switch halfway through. Like, Jean goes from the golden green to golden red. Scott shifts from blue and gold to blue and white. They all have, like, right around the time they stop being the exterminators, and they drop the, frankly, insane we're mutant hunters cover identity that doesn't make any sense that Bob Layton yeah. established and that Louise Simonson tried we're to spreading hate to say yeah mutant. like it doesn't I mean the only thing that fixes it is Louise Simonson being like surprise Cameron Hodge is evil and this was always a terrible idea you're like yeah that makes a lot more sense like it's another one of those things where you have to go well Jean doesn't have her telepathy right now because you'd think she would have thought why are we doing this this doesn't seem like a <laughs> <laughs> the first time we see what a truly stupid planet is it's when they bring in skids she's like okay we'll come with you because they rescue her and rusty from freedom force which is mystique's brotherhood that is now working for the government which i would argue becomes their like arch 
nemesis. Yeah, they're nemesis. Like they are constantly beset by Freedom Force. Freedom Force has been tasked with bringing in Rusty because he's a dangerous mutant. His power, as we've said, is pyrokinesis. He's not good at controlling it. He is AWOL from the Navy and they want to bring him in. So they beat the shit out of him in the Morlock tunnels where Skids has brought him to protect him. X-Factor saves them as the X-Terminators and then they bring them back to the headquarters. And this is when the mutant massacre pops off. Mm -hmm. So Skids loses that whole family ecosystem that she had built for herself. She's one of the only survivors of the mutant massacre. It's like Callisto, Healer, Skids, Erg, Ape, Tar Baby, who is unfortunately named and we will probably never see again. Yeah. That's one of those things where it's like the origin of the term is actually not race related necessarily, but let's just never say it again, probably. You know, like, I think that's, uh, yeah, let's just not. And Sunder, who becomes a Muir Island X-Man for one second before getting murdered. So, yeah, she's one of like the five or six that make it out. Yeah. Beautiful dreamer. I'm just trying to think. But for the most part, all of her friends are butchered. She's with X-Factor at their base and she hears a message that Cameron sends to Warren and she's like, wait, 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 Cameron Hodge, that's the X-Factor guy. He hunts mutants. She flips out, but Jean tries to convince them like, oh, Rusty is one of our wards. This is our whole secret plan. We pose as mutant hunters so that people will call us so that we'll pick up teen mutants so that we can keep them safe and train them. And Skids is like, okay. I mean, she's a teenager. She doesn't know what she's doing. These people seem smart. They seem like they know what they're doing. She's like, well, okay. But she's absolutely right. It's the most insane plan because all it does. Her reaction is very justified. Yeah. All it does is inflame human mutant tensions. Like there's suddenly this wave of anti-mutant sentiment in New York City that comes specifically out of X-Factor's TV commercials. I mean, it re- and that's why X-Factor and the X-Men don't get along for a really long time because Storm is like, I don't know what you think you're doing over there, but it's not helpful. But in the meanwhile, while the X-Men are in the outback, Skids is training with X-Factor. She finally manages to learn to turn off her force field. The story where she manages to do it for the first time is a fun story where she ends up sort of in a rematch with mask who had tormented her for so long and she chokes a bitch yeah she finally gets angry and like he has tortured and disfigured rusty and she is so pissed that she tries to strangle him and can't do it because her force field is like making them bounce off each other and she's so pissed that finally it just turns off and she chokes him out. <laughs> and it's because he messed up Rusty's face. And yeah, how dare face. you? And she only lets him go because she's like, you're going to turn him back right now and then you're going to leave. So, you know, that's kind of a fun that's a fun thing. Yeah. Mask is a bad guy. I mean, this is the thing. He's popped up on Krakoa and he's been a little bit more sympathetic lately because it's like Mask never realized that his powers could be used to heal rather than hurt. And it's like, it's a cool beat, but also it's like Mask hurt a lot of people though before <laughs> before this before this uh this turnaround. And Skids and Rusty versus Mask is a great reminder of like, no, this character is like real, real sadistic. Mm-hmm. Rusty tries to get Mask to heal 
the girl that Rusty burned brutally when his powers manifested. And Mask is like, I'll do it, but only if you let me fuck up your face. And Rusty's like, okay. And, you know, then yeah. skids. Rusty always wants it. to sacrifice something. Constantly. Make amends. And then he finally gets his wish and is never seen yeah. again. <laughs> I was going to say, you touched on her learning how to use her powers. I love that about the character because there's so many X-Men where it's about, we're going to train you and you're going to go to school and you're going to learn how to use them. And a lot of them don't learn. Right. You never see the growth. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like Cyclops can't, you know, Rogue uh, here and there. For Rogue eventually learned to, with Cyclops, they retcon established that it was like a head injury and he just yeah. can't fix it. Right. They've gone back and forth on that a couple of times. But yeah, I mean, with those characters, the fact that they can't control it is such a central feature of the character mm -hmm. that it's hard for writers to do away with that because the brand always kind of comes back around to them not yes. being able to control it. I think Rogue, they may just let her now because I think most people, because of the cartoon, know her more as like a Supergirl type than as, because mm -hmm. of the Ms. Marvel powers. Yeah. But with someone like Cyclops, it's like, we're never taking the visor off. We're never like, you know, that's, yeah. that's his, his deal. Brand. Yeah. So for Skids, whose deal was the force field, it is cool that after not that long, that story is X-Factor 16, the one where we also get her backstory. That's only nine issues in, and she learns to do it. Now, not without difficulty, but then as the story continues, and we see her team up with the New Mutants in the Inferno, by that point, she's learned how to project it outward, how to make it bigger, how to shield other people. She really yeah. does put her back into it. Yeah. Really does grow in power by leaps and bounds over the course of those four years or so before she's written into comic limbo. Yeah, they, they kind of um, push it in like a, a Invisible Woman way where she can... I remember in I think the Brubaker story, she's making like a skateboard or something. She yeah, can yeah. slide on. Yeah. And, and yeah. She can, yeah. That infectious story would I remember she protects Iceman by by projecting her field over him so that when Infectious goes to kiss him. Right. Iceman doesn't know that Infectious kiss will mutate him into a monster. And so Skids projects her force field out. A force field like hers surrounds him suddenly and Infectious kiss slides right off him, which is a funny and then Infectious is like really pissed and she starts skating away. That's the other thing is like one of the first things she learns how to do with it, because this is when she can't turn it off and she's running away from home, is she can use the lack of friction under her feet to like speed skate around Manhattan, which is a cool application of a force field power. It's not something that you know it gives her like a travel power, like she gets kind of an almost a low grade super speed. That's cool. Right. I love that. And And is it like. Is it Eunice? Eunice? How do you say Unis, his name? Unis the Unis. Untouchable. It's Unision. It's Italian, but he like... Oh, okay. <laughs> he shortened it because it was that. the 60s. Well, Unision, his daughter, maybe, we don't know. It's never been established, but is one of the acolytes. Oh, okay. She has that psychic exoskeleton. Oh, right. right. She's the one who keeps Scott safe while Skids is keeping Jean safe when Avalon is coming down. Gotcha. But Skids, like when her dad was trying to be on her, he, he, she couldn't feel anything. So like... It is protective, too, yeah, in yeah, a yeah, way. Yeah. So, like, again, I think these are really cool powers that when you see someone like Ed Brubaker or, you know, uh, I think even in, in the Exterminator, she uses it to create, like, this cushion when they yes. jump out of a building. And, and like, there's so much you can do with that power. Yeah, she jumps out a window and, and breaks her own fall by making her feet frictionless and she can, like, land and not break her legs. Yeah. 
it's a power limited by the imagination of the writer. And if you can really play with that and, and again as a character who is learning how to use them and get better at them yeah i think there's like a cool untapped potential to her powers and her learning how to kind of continually change them and you know i, I imagine she could do something like armor too and build something even yeah. bigger around her armor and Nishion did exactly that and actually in sword right now so to jump way forward the cameo that you gave her in modok she's sort of an ambassador on krakoa and she's talking to gwenpool and Gwenpool, who is, like Deadpool, able to break the fourth wall, says to her that maybe if she's a really good girl, Hickman will put her on a chart. I felt, like, personally attacked by that panel because, <laughs> as I'm sure you know, as a similar fan, I am a mark for someone being on a chart. When Hickman or Ewing or Teeny Howard or someone else puts a mutant I have not seen in 10 years on a chart somewhere in this era, I gasp. I'm like, yeah. there she is. So it is, though, like that's the best you can hope for. Because before, and I don't know if you knew this, before your Modoc comic came out, the only place Skids had appeared in the Krakoa era was on a chart. Oh, really? I don't. I didn't know she did. I thought. We... Yes. In the first issue of Sword, uh -huh. when Ewing is explaining how the circuit of the six works, armor's back up in the six if she's unavailable is skits and it's just oh. noted on the org chart okay well in our defense i believe we had written it before that had come out i'm sure you had because of the timing but that's why it was so funny because you were 100 percent right we prophesized her finally being realized <laughs> um we had asked jordan our editor jordan white love jordan he did this show he's great he's the best and i was forever grateful that he let us play on the sandy beaches of Krakoa and he said she was possibly going to show up in X of Swords and I don't think she did because we were talking about is this going to work if this is her right. first appearance but I think it ended up being fine I don't think it she worked did. fine I mean there's so many characters in the background on Krakoa that you can have them pop up and they've just been here the whole time and it's fine right I should have said 10 of Swords I'm not I know what's going on I know, I, I know you know and I wasn't going to correct you I I'll, I'll correct myself <laughs> well, see, that's good. You knew. You knew and you fixed it. But yeah, no, I just love that because I had laughed out loud when she popped up on the chart and then it might have been the same month or like two weeks later or something that your issue comes out. It's like, oh, if you're really good, maybe Hickman will put you on a chart. And I'm like, that is exactly correct. That is all Skids has been able to hope for is you're not on the six. You're the backup. I actually, when it happened, I was like, love that for Skids, but it doesn't make any sense that Unishion, who has the same power as armor, wouldn't be your backup. Like Skids has to really work to build a big exoskeleton, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. Not my problem. And, and you know, <laughs> I love that for Skids. I love that for her. And hopefully yeah. Unishion you know has a job. You Ewing's problem. And I guarantee you he has a solution. Given that Fabian Cortez and Joanna Cargill and Amelia Vote are three of the really important characters in Sword, I have to assume that Unishion is going to pop up somewhere because you can tell Ewing loves those acolyte characters. Acolyte love, yeah. They are a lot of fun. Where's Senyaka? Where is Senyaka? I mean, he died, but that hasn't stopped anybody. I mean, everybody died and they've come back, so, yeah. you know, Senyaka well, should there pop one, up. Like John Mellencamp or something who got his head exploded? <laughs> Mellencamp like... was... A... There are a lot of acolytes who should pop up. The Kleinstock brothers. Yeah. Cortez's sister, who he killed for points in the Upstarts game. So she probably mm. will not be thrilled to see him again. There's a lot of potential, I feel, like, with the Acolytes and the Upstarts, where everyone was trying to make them happen sort of in the 90s. And they just didn't really happen. And yeah, yeah I think that a couple of those Acolyte... The MLF is the same way. I mean, like, you have these mm -hmm. characters where it was the 90s. It was like, we're establishing new threats. 
like the acolytes are kind of the last Claremont hurrah, the first set of acolytes. And then mm-hmm. the upstarts, you know, I've been researching and I think Zaladane actually was supposed to be one of the upstarts. Oh, really? After Claremont left, instead of bringing her back from the dead, they created Sienna Blaze, is my understanding. I know that because Zaladane has sort of become the unofficial mascot of the podcast, just because she really captured fan imagination when I was explaining the Lorna Dane Zaladane thing. Yeah. You are my sister. I have searched the world for you. I actually just read it for the Patreon because I did a Patreon episode this week that's out by the time you hear this www.patreon.com slash cerebrocast for instant access, $5 a month to all the bonus episodes. This one, I broke down all 12 appearances of Zaladane because she's only appeared 12 times. Did you include the X-Men game on Sega Genesis? No, but we've talked about that. The thing about Zaladane that's funny is like she's in an episode of the X-Men animated series. She is the first boss in that Sega Genesis game. She feels like this much more important character than she ever was because she only appears in 12 issues. But the Zaladane has become a unit of measurement on this podcast, 12 issues. So like Skids, for example, has appeared almost seven Zaladanes, which is an impressive (laughs) showing for a character who, I mean, a lot of it is that kind of cameo stuff you're talking about where she'll pop up for like two issues. She had a fun run recently in Matthew Rosenberg did a Winter Soldier and Black Widow mini and. Mm -hmm. She's like an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. there, and they sort of they brought her back from the uh, from the Brubaker 198 stuff. I think that's the last time she appeared until you brought her back. Yeah, I was depressed for a month when I thought she had died. When you like, thought she was dead, they, they do a like, fake out on. with her, yeah. You're like, Skids? You can't kill Skids? She's got a personal <laughs> force field. You can't blow up Skids. But Matthew's a great writer. I should have known better. It turned out you can't blow up Skids, and it was all a ruse. <laughs> But yeah, so going back, where the story goes is after the infection of it all, Rusty decides to turn himself in. As you're saying, he's always, I have to face the music. It's like, why? Real martyr that no one cares about. I know, just endlessly. If he wasn't a redhead, I wouldn't even look twice at him. I just love a ginge. (laughs) And clearly Skids does too, much to her own suffering. He's like, I'm going back to the Navy. I'm going to be court-martialed because I don't think that mutants should be above the law. And Skids is like, if the law does nothing but oppress us, why should we listen to the law? The thing is, it's an interesting tension. Like, she is this rogue, no pun intended, but similar to rogue, is like yes. this teenage girl who has an uncontrollable power, who winds up in a found family of villains, in her case, the Morlocks, in rogue's case, the Brotherhood, and is a radical The Morlocks are like, fuck your appeasement of humans, like your assimilationist rhetoric, like this isn't now. And then people like Mask, who are hostile to humans, cause a problem. You know, like if it was just live and let live, it would be a little different. Skids is the kind of person who, I mean, it's natural for her to be on Krakoa. That's what she's always wanted, is a place for mutants to be safe away from humans. That is her power writ large, right? Is like stay away. Like that is, she's a separatist by nature of her genetic code defensive defensive power yeah yeah remove herself from situation so (laughs) then there's this weird this it's very funny beat where like so rusty goes back to the navy and gets imprisoned and they send the rest of the students to the phillips exeter academy which is just like sure why not gene is like we want you to get a real education and we're not teaching you like math or anything (laughs) so you should probably go to school That doesn't last very long because Inferno breaks out and that's where the Exterminators, as they call themselves, get their own miniseries, that four issue. Why would they call themselves that? She hated that. 
I know, I know. Well, I think at this point she's decided that, you know, she loves her teachers in X Factor and that was the name they used as Vigilante, which frankly, it doesn't really make sense that they use that name. The whole, I mean, again, the whole premise of X Factor is ludicrous, but they decide we're the exterminators now because our teachers aren't using the name anymore. I'll just say it makes a lot of sense that as soon as this miniseries ends, they just fold themselves into the New Mutants and are all just called the New Mutants because the New Mutants is also kind of a silly name because Mm -hmm. it's like at a certain point, you're no longer new. Like these same characters are now in a book called New Mutants in 2021 Mm -hmm. and they're older than I am. So it's sort of like, well, (laughs) at this point, you're kind of past due mutants a little bit, like time to Mm -hmm. time to leave the nest kids. But I think that's what the new book is about, which is fun. Yeah. But it makes sense for them to be there. Like that yes. is... Yes. Oh, absolutely. No, that, I mean, that book is sensational. Um, the Vida Ayala New Mutants is probably, I think, certainly the best it's been since Zeb Wells, mm-hmm. rapidly approaching that Claremont Sienkiewicz sweet spot where yeah. it's like, this it's is... fantastic. It's so good. I, I love it. I was referring more to the, the Exterminators, though, being oh, folded yeah, yeah, into yeah. the New Mutants. Yes, of That's course. They, they absolutely belong. Because once the X-Men and X-Factor are not at odds anymore you should bring these characters into the popular book. Yeah. But yeah, it all happens in the Inferno crossover where in that miniseries, I'm not a big John Bogdanov guy. I love his boom boom. His boom boom is delightful. That I will 100, but other, I think it's a little cartoony for me. It fits the tone of that miniseries, but it's really jarring. I was just rereading, as Madeline Pryor's personal defense attorney, I reread Inferno several times a year. And the Omni just came out, the new Omni that collects all of Inferno and the crossovers, like oh, wow. the Anacenti Daredevil stuff. And yeah, so I was reading through that and it really is jarring, just specifically the depiction of Nastir. And this is Simonson writing both stories, but with Brett Blevins drawing in New Mutants, he is absolutely terrifying. And with Bogdanov drawing in Exterminators, he's a joke, you know, and it's kind of... Because we're looking at it through WizKid's eyes, and he is, like, 13, it makes sense that we're in this... It's much more like Power Pack if we're going to look at Louise Simonson's work generally. But it does give the Exterminator team their new costumes. The costume that Skids has basically worn ever since. She wore it in your cameo appearance on Krakow. It's like a variation of it. It's yellow and blue. It's a yellow unitard with like a... She actually, before Jim Lee, put all of the X-Men in leather jackets over their unitards. She was doing it. It's a yellow, bold yellow, like canary yellow unitard. And then she has a blue jacket that she wears over it with like a little sash and booties and gloves that match that's part of her character she's fashion forward yeah and she really did predict that there's this panel it's a splash page during inferno that i always like whenever i think of skids it's the one i think of where it's her and rusty and danny moonstar standing outside the church where they're trying to protect the babies that they've rescued from the ritual and the demons are just circling going babies 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 (laughs) (laughs) and rusty's like shooting fire and danny has her like dream spear skids is just like pushing her force field out as far as it will go and like knocking demons on their ass it's just like a cool she also like grows her hair out with this look so she becomes very sue storm visually it definitely pushes into that realm and she's you know force fielding other people this is where her power really starts to evolve but that's kind of her last hurrah because They join up with the New Mutants in New Mutants 74, 
The New Mutants have rejected Magneto because they saw Magneto talking to Nastir, so they think he's evil again. They were mad at him anyway about Doug, which really is right. not his fault. So, like, that's, that their, John, that's their fault. So, wasn't that more of like a John Byrne, I'm gonna do what I want to do because Claremont didn't let me issue of New Mutants, right? No, that's that's Wheezy. Oh, was for some reason yeah. I always thought that he drew it. Maybe I always thought that was. I like know a, it's, let's it's do a... Wheezy and Blevins. Oh, really? And we haven't mentioned this, but Skids, yeah. Sally Blevins, is presumably named after Brett Blevins, who Wheezy was working on New Mutants with at the time. Who I think is the most underrated X-Men artist of all time. I love Brett Blevins. That is a hot take. I So again, I'm never drawn as much to the more cartoony styles. Like, I'm not a Chris Bocciolo person particularly. Like, I can recognize, like, this is great. It's just not my thing. Yeah. And I think with Brett Blevins, it depends on the story for me. I think that his stuff with Ileana in Inferno is gorgeous, like absolutely gorgeous. And I like the character design, the costumes he did for the New Mutants in that era. I think that they're Mm -hmm. very chic and it was nice to get them out of, I mean, chic for 1988, to be clear. (laughs) But I also think it was nice to get them out of the training uniforms finally. Right. You know what the problem was? Why I think people had that reaction to Blevins. He's coming after Sienkiewicz. I think if he came after like Bob McCloud, exactly, it would have been great. yeah. But he's they kind of age up in Sienkiewicz, mm-hmm. and then and then they were told by Marvel like age, age them, them down. down, and that's what he does. I mean, it's also the reaction that a lot of people I think unfairly have to the Simonson New Mutants. And listen, there are some stories like the Bird Brain story is not great. The Gossamer story is not great, but. I actually think the death of Doug and all of that is done extraordinarily well. I do think it is undercut somewhat by the Brett Blevins arc and that animator arc. The big head kind of super deformed way that he draws them, the pathos of like Doug being murdered is not quite as, I don't know. I think that it feels jarring, but on the other hand, like the Inferno issues, and it's interesting because you have like Walt Simonson and Mark Silvestri drawing the other two books and it's this very sort of operatic scale story and then you cut to the Simonson stuff and it's Blevins doing this very surreal Ileana's journey through Manhattan like when she kills the barber's chair and she's been trying not to kill and the barber's chair is like you killed me master will be pleased she's like I can't kill you you're a chair he's like I'm alive now everything's alive now that's because of you dark child you know all of that stuff is really good and scary that's the thing when he plays up I also like his issue of Mutant Massacre where he like draws the Marauders and stuff because I think when he leans into my style is kind of cutesy, but also the thing that's happening is unbelievably fucked up. That's where I think it hits like a sweet spot for me. Yeah. Well, I think that's why the Inferno stuff works so well, right? It's it's kind of like a like a fucked up Beauty and the Beast where every yeah. like inanimate object is alive. Yeah, and every and all these demons are trying to marry Ilyana and she's like, I'm just trying to not turn into a demon. Can we like, yeah. you know, it's very that. It also, as Simonson did with Skids, it underlines Ilyana's backstory. And this is something that had always been implied by Claremont, but the Inferno stuff underlines it really extensively that Ilyana is a survivor of child abuse and that that's what her story is really about. And in her case, it's, it's really horrific sort of implied sexual abuse in Limbo. One of the reasons that that arc really works is I will say this about Brett Blevins. He is incredibly good at drawing children, which is hard to do and is not something that most superhero comics. Correct. I was just thinking of John Byrne's (laughs) nightmare babies whenever Wanda and Vision's twins were seen. That's where it works in his favor. (laughs) Yeah. Or like, who was it? Who was, was it like Jared JR or somebody, somebody on Spider-Man when like little Normie Osborne was around, that kid always looked fully demonic. Like it was not. A look that you wanted it's a really hard thing to do and so the Ilyana arc only works 
because like it, the only way it can work is if you, the reader, want to protect child Ileana the same way that Rain does and the same way that Ileana ultimately decides she must. It helps that Brett Blevins draws the most adorable little girl mm-hmm. who is like in hell. And you're like, this is the worst thing. I can't deal with this. You know, I was 12 when I read that and like it blew the brain on my head. As that arc draws to a close, the New Mutants are like, we're done with Magneto. We're done with Xavier's. We're done with the Hellfire Club. Like, fuck him. He can go hang out with Celine and Emma Frost and all these people we don't like. If you're chilling with Sebastian Shaw, we're not your students anymore. We're over it. They ask if they can move into ship with the ex-Terminators who are like, sure, because they're all friends now. And they've rescued all the babies. They rescue the babies. This is what Zeb Wells picks up much later because the babies will become really essential to Skids's denouement here, I guess, as a character for a long time. They all come together. And that's New Mutant 74. This is after, you know, Ileana sacrificed herself. They're all depressed. But the two teams come together. It's only three issues later in New Mutant 77 that Freedom Force is after Rusty again. They just can't let it go. They're on Liberty Island and Skids decides there's no time. Like, you all need to go get X-Factor to help. Rusty and I will hold them off. I have a force field and she can make it big at this point. So Freedom Force can't get us, right? Like, they can't capture us. What she doesn't account for is that Mystique is like 150 years old and smarter than her and is just sort of like, okay, um... Hmm, what should we do? And she just has Pyro burn a circle under them and then just has Blob lift the floor that they were standing on up and carries them around in her force field like they're on a silver platter, like in a dish. (laughs) And takes them into custody. And that's really like the end Mm -hmm. for Rusty and Skids as main characters. They're kind of done. And Rusty's kind of okay with this. Is this another one where he's like, I I deserve this? Yeah, it's kind of like, they're taken to federal prison, yada yada. Where it becomes a problem for them is they overhear the truth about the babies, the Inferno babies, which is that while the government said to X Factor, we're going to give these babies back to their parents, actually they've been sent to a government facility to be raised as super soldiers or whatever. So Skids is like, that's appalling. This is now Liefeld's art, which is how you know Skids is on her way out the door. Yeah, the Rob has arrived. (laughs) And she's like arguing with Mystique about it. And Mystique is like, listen, we can't let you go because now you know something that could be very dangerous to important people in our government. So you're just going to die in the hole basically here. And so when the Mutant Liberation Front starts agitating about breaking Rusty and Skids out of jail, Skids is like, well, I don't want to die in prison. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. Like, we are being held here in a way that's not acceptable. There's a prison break first, which is kind of... This is a neat arc. Basically, like, the vulture... They're being held at, like, a prison for superhumans, generally. And the vulture stages a prison break. And Rusty is like, we've got to stop him. He's going to hurt innocent people. And Skids is like... Let the vulture hurt other humans. I don't give a shit. What has humans ever done for us, no matter how many times we've tried to help them? It's a nice characterization moment for the two of them, because he's still very much like an Xavier assimilationist type, and she's just never been that person. And this is why I think if they had really cared about these characters post-Simonson, you could have actually really written Skids 
becoming an MLF person in a way that would have been interesting, but there just didn't seem to be that much yeah. interest in the yeah, character. Yeah, you break them up, right? Maybe keep You break them up and she him. stays. That's what you do, you know? And yeah. you, you keep him, you kill him off, whatever. Like, it doesn't really matter. She was always the more interesting character. Mm-hmm. Well, his thing is right. He's always still trying to pay penance for... For burning that girl who has forgiven him. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> you know what it kind of reminds me of because we talked about how tragic right her origin is yeah like he reminds me and i and if this offends anyone i'm sorry but like someone who's like in their late 30s who's like ah oh, my grandma died she was 90 you'll never understand the pain i feel and like skids is the one's like yeah my parents died when i was like 10 but i'm sure you're really feeling yeah yeah no speaking <laughs> as a 33 year old whose grandmothers both died over the course of the last year and they were both 89 years old. I'm pretty sad about it. However, they were 89. I'm not going yeah. to compare notes with my friend who is an orphan, for example. Like it's just a different, yeah. just a That's different what it experience. Feels like to me. You know. And I also, I, I also, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that. I also oh, talked with my grandparents no, for the last two years. Listen, I'm, I'm saying in case that did upset anybody. That's me. Like, and I get it. I get exactly the comparison you're making because like, yeah, I'm sad about my grandma. On the other hand, like she was 90 years old. Like she was not struck down in her prime in a tragic accident or by violence or whatever. It's like she had a heart attack because she was 90. That'll happen. Right. And here it's like I my mom died in my arms. I couldn't save her because my, yeah, my father beat my mother to death. My mutant powers manifested to protect me, but prevent me from saving her life. Yeah. Then I was a runaway who lived in the sewer. So I just don't yeah. care that much about your guilt complex. Like I just yeah, don't. It's like and you burned a girl who forgave you and X Factor immediately saved you and took yeah. you in. <laughs> so like relax, maybe, you know, but the thing that is interesting is like. When the prison break is happening and she doesn't want to do anything, but she realizes that Vulture has broken Nitro out. And Nitro is actually really, really dangerous. Is he the one who blew up Stanford? He blew up Stanford, right? Yeah, I was just about to say, he was the one who in Civil War blows up Stanford, Connecticut, which is not a fictional place. Just to be clear, if you're not from Westchester like we are, Stanford yeah. is like 20 minutes that way from my house, my parents' house that I'm living in right now in the unprecedented times that we're all living in. I was there before the pandemic and then it just, the plague hit, so I stayed. In any case, Stanford, which is a very real place in Connecticut, the Civil War inciting event in Civil War, the comic, is that Nitro is fighting the New Warriors and the New Warriors are trying to get footage for their reality show. So they're like, we'll fight Nitro. It'll be cool. And then Nitro explodes, which is his power. He explodes. And (laughs) he kills a lot of children, particularly, like a school blows up or whatever. It's like a big crisis that that's what leads to all of the civil war controversy so this is long before that and skids recognize she's like that's one of the more dangerous like crazy supervillains out there we got to do something about that so she actually sees that nitro is going to blow up and kill a lot of people and so she jumps on him with her force field extended and he does the explosion and she eats it the whole thing. She takes it in her force field. It goes boom. You see her skeleton. There's <laughs> like in the one panel, like because it's like boom, like this nuclear explosion. You see her skeleton in the force field, but she actually does manage to absorb the full brunt of it. But she's like knocked unconscious because that is really traumatic. And Freedom Force recaptures them. So she gives up her opportunity to escape 
because fundamentally, even if she's like, fuck humans, when she sees that like Nitro is about to melt people to nuclear ash, she's like, okay, I am a hero. Like I was trained to do this. I'm going to help. And that's when Mystique is like, well, we can never let you go because you'll tell people about the babies. And then the MLF starts agitating about them. I think because they've heard about them thanks to this incident with Nitro. I don't remember the exact timeline, but it's like, why are these kids? I mean, they're minors also. Like, why are they being held captive? Like, what is this? The MLF eventually shows up. The babies get dropped completely after this plot. Zeb Wells then picks it up in his New Mutants run in the 2000s with the Inferno Babies arc. That's really, really great. It's the only thing I ever want to talk to him about when I see him. And he just wants to talk about anything else. I mean, he's very proud of it, but I'm like, let's get into that. Can we get into the babies again? Yeah, Yeah. no, I love it. I love that. Talk about this like 10 times. What do you want? I love that run on New Mutants. I was just talking about it because last week's episode was on Pixie and uh, she factors into that story because of her whole deal with Ileana. I love that book. But yeah, so the MLF breaks in to the hospital where they are recuperating in the prison and the guards immediately turn and try to execute Rusty and Skids so that they can't be taken away, (laughs) which is just, I mean, I will say like freedom force in general is one of the harshest critiques of like the American government in a Marvel comic in a way that I find really delightful. Like Valerie Cooper, who's a character I find absolutely fascinating, special liaison to Ronald Reagan on Mutant Affairs, hires Mystique and her whole team of evil mutants because Mystique is like, yes, I did try to assassinate a presidential candidate. However, uh, what if I worked for you? And Val's like, love it. Love that for me. Let's do it. I'll give you a full pardon. So (laughs) the second that it looks like these kids might escape with the knowledge of those babies, the guards turn on them and try to kill them. Skids is protected because she has a force field, obviously, but Rusty's in bad shape. Like he gets shot. It's like not great. And so she says to the MLF, you know what? Take us. Yes, we'll join. We're in. And that's New Mutants 87. That's the moment, by the way, right? That's where like, that's her. What's that Gwyneth Paltrow movie where she- Sliding doors. Yeah. This is her sliding doors. If she- it's like, you know what? This guy's kind of actually really held me back. You take him and get him some care. Take him somewhere safe. I'll be here. I'll, you know, yeah, no. No one's shooting me. I got a force No, nope. she chooses I'll Rusty and goes with the MLF. And that really is the end of her as a character in regular publication. She pops up again a couple times first. Like in 100, the last issue of New Mutants, we see that Rusty and Skids have joined the MLF. And it's like, oh, wow. But as the story goes on, as Nisiasis started writing X-Force, I think he probably, I mean, I, I should ask him about this. He did a very funny episode where we talked about Adam X, the X-Dream. It's only like 90 minutes if you're ever in the mood. I'm absolutely going to listen to To revisit that, that yeah. era. We talk about the writing of Executioner's song. But once Fabian was writing, I think he was just kind of like, why are Rusty and Skids evil now? So <laughs> it's established that Strife used his telepathic powers to basically brainwash them into being yeah. hardline mutant liberation front terrorists. They start to question it. They're like, yeah, is this a good call? they were there. And then they were like, OK, liberate mutants. But then like as it got more and more violent, Skids was like, we're not into this. So he brainwashed them with his powers their mo where they join a cult whether it's this or the acolytes they're like this is a great decision and then suddenly they're like ah it's kind of weird right right i never thought the leopards would eat my face as woman who voted for <laughs> leopards eating faces party right like it's kind of that and what's unfortunate i mean i've said this about the mutant liberation front generally is that like the mlf is in many ways correct about the x-men and how the x-men don't really help 
everyday mutants and how this whole assimilationist quest is ludicrous. Unfortunately, they are working for a psychopath who doesn't actually care about mutants to the point where he releases the legacy virus just to cause trouble. Like he's not, it's all a fraud. And that's the tragedy for characters like Tempo, who joined the MLF to try and actually do something good. And then first are like conscripted into murders that they weren't planning on being part of. And then realize that Strife is completely full of shit. Yeah, real Nexium vibes from this. Big time, big time for sure. Um, And it also like, it feels very IRA, right? In terms of like, Mm -hmm. That feels like it's the analog that's being used yeah, is like absolutely at the risk of getting really in the weeds on that. Like, I believe in Irish independence. However, like, you know, killing innocent people is a, is problematic. Yes. Let's say There's a violence begets violence kind of thing with the MLF. Yeah. Yes. And that's sort of the the takeaway. Right. So the new mutants are like, why are Russians kids crazy now? And eventually in, I think, X-Force 25, like pretty deep into the Niciesa run, Magneto... Wait, you skipped a step. What did I skip? Well, we talked about the rivalry, right, between right. Boom and Skids. Oh, well, yes, Skids you're right. In Executioner's song. Yes. Go. You tell them. You tell them about okay. it because it's hilarious. The big thing, right, is, is Boom Boom loves to run her mouth. It's one of my favorite things about the character. I love Boom Boom. Don't get me wrong. I love Boom Boom. I just yeah. feel bad for Skids that Boom Boom showed up and it was like, I'm the hot yes. thing now. It's a good moment for Skids, a bad moment for Boom Boom. I love both <laughs> characters equally. <laughs> They're my little Madonna pesties children, and I love them the same. But uh, Skids gets to kick Boom Boom so hard, she breaks her jaw. Kicks her right across the face. The sound effect, I just pulled up the panel. The sound effect is cracked. Yeah. Crack in with all Ks and a T on the end. It's great. And she has to get her jaw wired shut, which is a weird thing that was happening to X-Men in the 90s. Polaris also has her jaw wired in Executioner's Song. Yeah. It's a weird thing that just kept happening to people. Yes. For Boom Boom, it's a particularly funny thing because Boom Boom's whole deal, as you've said, is running her mouth. And so for the rest of Executioner's song, she's like, I don't know everybody, like with her jaw wired shut. And it's kind of like a comedy bit. But yeah, Skids cracks her right across the fucking face with her foot and just nails her. They're captured in that event. And Val Cooper, who is now working with X-Factor with Havoc and Polaris because Freedom Force did not work out. Yeah. Still doing shady stuff, though. There was all thing involving the Shadow King. Val Cooper's like, okay, maybe we hire heroes, not villains. So they build the new X-Factor. She now has Rusty and Skids in custody. They've forgotten about the babies. Or, like, maybe Val doesn't know they know about the babies. I don't know. She arranges to have them sent to Xavier's so that Charles can repair the brainwashing. Because it becomes very clear to everyone who knew them, like, this is not normal. They're a little off. Yeah, yeah, like, it's, like, full Patty Hearst. Like, they are completely, like, something was done to these people, right? Then they're attacked by the Friends of Humanity, who are, like, a new human supremacist threat. The Friends of Humanity kind of rise up to replace the right, which was Cameron Hodges' organization, that after Cameron Hodges killed kind of falls off. Grand and Creed? Great and Creed, yeah. Great and Creed, yeah, Great and Creed. So X-Force rescues them from the Friends of Humanity and Skids and Rusty are still like, you could do whatever you want, but like, we will never help you like assimilationist dogs, you know, or whatever. And uh, it's finally Magneto, which is fully random, who basically like Exodus shows up and invites the New Mutants formerly, who are now X-Force, to join the Acolytes. Cannonball pretends to be interested because they want to spy on what Magneto's up to on Avalon, his orbital space station. But Rusty and Skids come along 
and Magneto can see what was done to them, sort of. Like, because this is that time in the 90s where the iron in people's blood was a plot device they used a ton with Magneto. Like, mm. he did a lot of that stuff at that time. And here, he... I forget how they explain it, but it's very He, like, weird. removes pieces of their brain. Yeah, he, like, <laughs> uses his control, his fine motor control over the metals in their blood to break down the pieces of their brain tissue that were psychically altered by strife. But this, this completely fits Magneto's ability to make his powers work for however the story needs it to. Yeah, that's Magneto's thing, right, yeah. yeah. There's a really great moment in... <laughs> it's really funny to think of it that way there's a really great moment in the chuck austin polaris storyline which is not generally <laughs> seen as a great storyline first but... time that's ever been said yeah yeah i actually like i am a defender of chuck austin's polaris it's an enormously sexist storyline but it's also one of the only interesting things anyone had ever done with polaris who unfortunately is a character i love but who is really dull a lot of the time i like that way yeah. she's being written right now but for most of her publications when she wasn't possessed by something she was just like it's not Jean, but she's like Jean, but her hair is green that's like it there was no real yeah. other meat to the character so i liked like radical polaris who's a little crazy like it was written in a way that was perhaps not ideal but there is that moment at the wedding when Havoc leaves her at the altar that she knocks all of the guests out by reversing their blood flow <laughs> and she's I like oh that. like yeah. forgot I could do that right like I am Magneto's daughter right but so yeah he cures Rusty and Skids and they decide to stay with him on Avalon this cult's gonna be different this one's this gonna work cult out. is going to be different and you know <laughs> Skids is probably still thinking about how Mystique was like, the government will never let you be free. Like, you know, so she's like, all right, we'll stay here. We'll stay here. Am I wrong also that they wake up as if they have no memories of being in the MLF? They're kind I of think like, so. I think it's just gone. Sam, how do we get here? Like, what's going on? Yeah. yeah, they're like, what happened to us? And Exodus is like, welcome to Avalon. I guess he's French, right, Exodus? So it's like, welcome to Avalon, mon chéri. Uh, okay. Do you think they're just like, oh, man, we should totally pretend like we don't remember, like we're not responsible. That's what I like to think, like, because <laughs> if I had just been brainwashed into many acts of terrorism and I was unbrainwashed, I'd be like, man, I don't remember a blessed thing. It's all gone. What year is it? Is it nineteen ninety? Who's the still? president? Wow. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so that I think is a good strategy. And if they came up with that on their, I feel like Skids comes up with it and probably just like glances at him, like follow along do this for once in your fucking life lie <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> um, they stay on avalon for a while magneto is left basically in a coma after fatal attractions exodus has like sort of taken over the acolytes and he's a lot more extreme and skids is like i don't know about this now and then holocaust comes aboard don't worry about it Holocaust, who is this complicated character, ends up killing a whole bunch of acolytes, including Rusty, by just like sucking their life force out. And that's the end of Rusty, who has never appeared again. And right before they die, they have the exact same scene they've had at the MLF. <laughs> Where they're like, was this a good call? Maybe we, we should not have stayed. Call. Right. <laughs> yeah. Skids manages to escape. And like we said earlier, Michonne helps Cyclops get back to Earth by like telekinetically protecting with her exoskeleton their escape pod or whatever. And Skids does the same for Jean Grey. 
Jean's like telekinetically holding the flotsam and jetsam together or whatever to make like a makeshift pod and then Skids uses her force field to protect them from cosmic radiation and I will say this is a bit of a banger power moment for Skids because that is what Jean tried to do back in X-Men 100 that fully killed her and turned her into the Phoenix. So Skids, you know, her force field is pretty freaking good if she can actually keep out stellar radiation. And it's a cool moment because she gets to show off to her old teacher. Yeah, but then she is gone because that's it. Like Rusty's dead, Skids is not seen again. She doesn't pop up again until the road trip era of X-Force. I think that's probably a good time now that we've given you the classic Skids stories and why we like Skids and you should too to pause for the Cerebro character file on Sally Blevins. This will take you through all of those stories we just talked about in order, as opposed to us just going like, ooh, 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 and then, you know, jumping on things. And then also take you through what happened to her in the 90s and beyond, which is not a ton, but you should know about it. She gets the club hair. She gets that kind of raver (laughs) hair. For a minute. Yeah, it's dreadful. We'll get there. We'll come back then for more with Jordan Bloom on Skids. We'll talk a bit about those later stories and what we would like to see for the character. And then we will answer your questions and then talk a little bit about Jordan's new show. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Sally Blevins, usually called Skids, is a prominent character of the 80s whose star burned out quickly. Created by Louise Simonson and Butch Geese, she was introduced as one of the original X-Factor team's young wards, a runaway turned Morlock who became a dedicated student. With the introduction of her more outgoing teammates, Boom Boom and Richter, Sally and her boyfriend Rusty Collins were written out in fairly short order. After Rusty's death, Sally fell into the background, where she has generally remained. Introduced in 1986's X-Factor No. 7, Sally is a teenage runaway who took the alias Skids and became one of the Morlocks, whose visible mutations have compelled them to eschew the surface world and live in the tunnels beneath Manhattan. The other Morlocks disdain Sally for her beauty, and because of her own power, a semi-permeable force field she cannot turn off, Sally cannot be disfigured in solidarity with her comrades by the Flesh Shaper mask. Isolated, she wanders around on the surface sometimes, and there she witnesses a battle between X-Factor and the government agency Freedom Force, formerly Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Freedom Force is trying to apprehend X-Factor's young mutant student, Rusty Collins, a pyrokinetic who's absent without leave from the Navy after accidentally burning a woman nearly to death. Sally rescues Rusty from the fight, and while using their powers to fend off a mob of bigoted bystanders, they discover that Sally's force field makes it impossible for Rusty's fire to harm her. Sally leads the already smitten Rusty to the Morlock tunnels, where she hopes they can hide until all blows over, but Freedom Force finds them, and the blob hurts Rusty really badly. The teens are rescued by X-Factor, and not a moment too soon, because the event called Mutant Massacre has begun, and the Morlocks are being exterminated in the tunnels. Sally overhears a call from Cameron Hodge, and realizes the heroes calling themselves the Exterminators are actually X-Factor, notorious mutant hunters. She freaks out, but Jean Grey explains that X-Factor's alleged mutant hunting is a front for helping mutant teens. While Sally's understandably skeptical, because that doesn't make any sense, she decides to stay and become one of their trainees like Rusty. Their bond quickly grows romantic, but Sally remains unable to turn off her force field and actually touch him. She nonetheless decides to stay with him and X-Factor when the other surviving Morlocks return to the tunnels under the leadership of Mask. Mask, disgusted with Sally for electing to pass as human, swears vengeance. The following issue, X-Factor 16, gives us Sally's backstory. Her father, Bill, is an explosively violent man, and her mother, Matilda, suffered his abuse. When Matilda let Sally wear a string of pearls to dress up, Bill felt it was inappropriate given Sally's age. In a rage, he beat Matilda nearly to death, then turned to Sally and tried to attack her too. 
At that moment, Sally's mutant power catalyzes a defense mechanism, making his punches slide right off her. She frightened him into running away, then tried to help her mother. But Matilda was bleeding out, and Sally's new force field made her unable to do anything to help. Matilda died beside Sally, telling her daughter to take the pearls and run. Sally remembers all this during a training session when Rusty accidentally breaks that same necklace. The pearls scatter to the ground, as they had during the murder of Sally's mother, and Jean Grey suggests that Sally try to pick them up as power practice. Triggered and angry, Sally leaves and returns to the Morlock tunnels. Rusty tracks her there and tries to kiss her, but his power flares up and only her force field protects her from being burned. They're then attacked by Mask, who doesn't want to let Sally get away again, but they escape and return to headquarters. Rusty then learns that Emma Laporte, the woman he burned when his power manifested, has been left extremely disfigured. He secretly returns to Mask, bringing Emma with him in the hopes that Mask can repair her face. As payment, Rusty allows Mask to disfigure his own face. When Sally and X-Factor discover them, as Mask is sealing Rusty's airways with flesh, she's so furious she finally managed to control her force field, the better to strangle Mask until he agrees to restore Rusty to normal. Over the next 15 issues, Sally continues to master her powers, learning to shield others by enlarging or projecting her force field outward. She has a number of adventures with her fellow students, as she and Rusty are joined by Richter and Boom Boom. At one point, she's kidnapped by agents of the right, human supremacists working for Cameron Hodge, but X-Factor rescues her. Memorably, she uses her force field to prevent the evil mutant Infectia from planting one of her dangerous kisses on Iceman. Eventually, Sally and the other trainees become subjects of public interest after X-Factor goes public about being mutant heroes in the wake of the event Fall of the Mutants. Sally and her friends are taken aback when their mentors in X-Factor decide the trainees need a formal education and enroll them at the Phillips Exeter Academy boarding school. Rusty, feeling a need to face his outstanding criminal charges for some martyr complex reason, goes back to the Navy and is imprisoned. Sally is devastated. This leads into the franchise-wide event Inferno and the miniseries Exterminators by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. When the youngest X-Factor trainees, Artie Maddox and Leech, who were sent to another boarding school, are kidnapped by demons, their new friend Taki Matsuya, aka WizKid, contacts the older trainees to launch a rescue mission. Sally and her friends break Rusty out of prison and design new costumes, taking the name The Exterminators, after the fake cover identities X-Factor used for heroism when they were still maintaining the mutant hunter fiction. The new Exterminators team up with the New Mutants to rescue their friends and also ten mutant babies the demon Nastir plans to sacrifice as part of a ritual. After the Inferno ends, the two teenage teams merge, with the New Mutants joining Sally and her friends on X-Factor's living ship. The babies are taken by government officials, who promise they will be reunited with their parents. Sally, Rusty, Richter, and Boom Boom all become cast members in New Mutants, but soon Freedom Force comes after Rusty again. With Danny Moonstar succumbing to possession by an evil spirit, don't worry about it, Skids tells her teammates to run away and get X-Factor for help, believing she can keep herself and Rusty safe with her force field. After the blob accidentally reveals that the Inferno babies have been kept by the government to become weapons, Mystique and Freedom Force capture Sally and Rusty, force field and all, and take them into custody. Sally eventually passes out from exhaustion, dispersing the force field, and Freedom Force has her charged with aiding Rusty in resisting arrest so that she can't spread the truth about the Inferno babies. Weeks later, the villain Vulture stages a prison break, and Skids is ambivalent about helping the humans deal with the problem. She still uses her powers to save innocent lives from another escapee, the dangerous supervillain Nitro, but Freedom Force manages to slander Rusty and Skids to the press as Nitro's collaborators. Sally realizes she and Rusty will never be let free because of what they know about the babies, so when the new terrorist group called the Mutant Liberation Front breaks them out and Rusty is shot by guards, Sally elects to throw both their lots in with the MLF. This is their exit from regular publication, though they continue to appear with the MLF, 
First is the group's conscience, but soon, abruptly, as diehard terrorists themselves. During the 1992 franchise-wide event Executioner's Song, while they're fighting their former friends, who are now members of X-Force, Boom Boom realizes Rusty and Sally have been brainwashed. They're ultimately taken into custody, and Val Cooper and Charles Xavier try to restore them. It doesn't work, and Skids and Rusty remain hostile even after they're saved from an attack by the Friends of Humanity. When X-Force is invited to join Magneto's Acolytes by the powerful villain Exodus, leader Cannonball pretends to be interested in order to get intel on the Acolytes' plans. Rusty and Sally are transported to the orbital station Avalon alongside X-Force, and Magneto determines that he can use his magnetic powers to reroute the blood flow in their brains and destroy the tissue the MLF's leader Strife altered with surgery and his telepathic powers. This restores Sally and Rusty to normal, but they decide to stay on Avalon with the Acolytes rather than return home to a life where they're regarded by the public as dangerous terrorists. They hang around in the background until 1995, when Avalon is destroyed by the villain Holocaust, Apocalypse's son from the alternate reality called the Age of Apocalypse. Don't worry about it right now. What matters is that he kills most of the Acolytes, including Rusty. Jean Grey and Cyclops arrive in an effort to help, and Sally and Jean manage to combine their powers to survive re-entry into Earth's atmosphere in a makeshift escape pod they craft out of wreckage. Three years later, Sally returns in John Francis Moore's new run on X-Force, often called the Road Trip Era by fans. We learn that she's abandoned the mutant world to enroll in college in Boulder, Colorado, where she's passing as a normal human. She's reluctant to interact with people from her old life, but allows her old friends in X-Force to crash with her for a few days on their journey. This gets her kidnapped alongside them by MLF members Rainfire and Locus. Forced to reveal her mutant powers in public, Sally finds her force field interacting strangely with Locus's teleportation, and the two are abruptly transported across the globe to the mountains of Latveria. There they are ensorcelled into becoming the servants of the demon sorceress Pandemonia. Don't worry about it. But are rescued and restored to themselves through the intervention of Danny Moonstar and her new friend, the sorceress Jennifer Kale. Skids next appears in 2004 in Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men, where she's depicted as part of the Los Angeles branch of X-Corporation under the command of her old friend Sunspot. X-Corp LA fights several of the X-Men after the telepath Elias Bogan takes control of them, and Sally is defeated in combat by Bishop. After the event called the Decimation depowers all but about 200 mutants, Sally is one of the rare members of Homo Superior to retain her powers. It's ironic, as she would have been happy to be normal. In the miniseries X-Men The 198 by David Hine, endangered now that bigots see the opportunity to fully exterminate mutant kind, Sally takes refuge at the X-Mansion alongside most of the so-called 198. Under writer Peter Milligan, when the villain Apocalypse turns up at camp, tempting the refugees with power, Sally is eager to join him. After his defeat, she and the others he manipulated are allowed to return to the mansion. She next appears in Ed Brubaker's run on Uncanny X-Men, where she appears to have joined a new extremist faction of Morlock terrorists led by her old enemy Mask. These Morlocks follow a book of prophecy about the future of mankind made by the decimated precognitive QWERTY. After they attack a subway train and Mask disfigures several human passengers, the X-Men and Valerie Cooper's agents hunt them down. Facing arrest, Sally's forced to reveal that she's actually been acting undercover as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., after she helps the X-Men defeat Mask, they assume Sally will give the Book of Cordy's prophecies to S.H.I.E.L.D., but secretly she arranges a meeting with the depowered Magneto. She admits that she could lose everything for meeting with him, but she still believes mutant kind has a future, and she wants Magneto to have the book, which mentions him extensively as vital to the future of the species, and claims he's still a mutant despite losing his powers in the decimation. Ten years later, in 2017's X-Men Blue No. 7 by Cullen Bunn, Sally appears as a captive of Hydra during the Secret Empire storyline. She's rescued by the time-traveling teen original X-Men. She then appears as Agent Blevins of S.H.I.E.L.D. in Matthew Rosenberg's miniseries Tales of Suspense, where she aids the Winter Soldier and Hawkeye in a plot involving the sordid history of the Black Widow. She's apparently killed midway through the mini, but turns out to be okay by the end of the story. 
It's a fun, quick read, and I recommend it. After the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Skids is one of many mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. In the miniseries Modoc Head Games by Jordan Bloom, Patton Oswalt, and Scott Hepburn, we see Sally's taken on a role helping newcomers acclimate to Krakoa, but she quits the job after a frustrating encounter with Gwenpool. She's also listed as part of the crew on The Peak in Sword by Al Ewing and Valerio Shidi, where she serves the emergency backup for Armor's role in the mutant technology circuit known as The Six. What will Sally Blevins do next? I don't know, but good luck catching her. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back with Marvel's MODOK on Hulu co-creator Jordan Bloom to talk more about Sally Blevins, the ungrippable skids. I don't know, like, what would her adjective be? She's a tragic, is, I feel like, after talking through her. She really is just without a home, always. Like, yeah. she's always a runaway again. That's what's so sad, right? Is that X-Men's about found family and like Skids is just always looking for family and ending up in cults. Yeah, never finds it. Never finds it ever. So I guess like where last we left our heroine, the character file has carried people through to the present. But in terms of the stories that I like, and I'd, I'd love to hear more about the stories that you like, but there are really only five Skid stories at all after the fall of Avalon. And those are X-Force Road Trip, the brief, almost cameo role she plays in Claremont's Extreme X-Men as a member of X-Corp Los Angeles, the 198 arc that she's in after the decimation, and her Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. arc where she's undercover with the Morlocks. Then she has the very recent story in the mini that we were talking about. And that's really it. So <laughs> we'll dig into these and then we'll get to read her questions because she is a character with a lot of potential who I think a lot of writers have not. And I really do think the code name is part of it. But <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing to me is like, why was Skids, if you're doing the decimation and you're only going to have 198 mutants left, why is Skids one of them? No one was really using that character. It's such an odd pull. You know, it's a good thing that we have more mutants now, because if we had stuck to just those roughly 200 and then a bunch of them get killed off in various events, like Skids doesn't want to hang out. Skids doesn't want to be part of your little club. So like what? <laughs> it's one of the very, very few mutants left and she's not really interested. It was just an interesting twist, but they never really followed up on it. They were playing it kind of like she's one of the people who would have been happy to have been turned human. Right. That's the thing. She would have loved to be decimated. She wants none of this anymore. And so I guess to bring out that theme, we should go back to the road trip arc first, right? This is the John Francis Moore period on X-Force. Starts in 1997. X-Force had been in kind of a rough spot. Fabian Niciesa is fired from the book midway through the Age of Apocalypse. And when it comes back, it's written by Jeff Loeb and drawn by Adam Polina. This run is just not enormously beloved by fans. In the very first issue, Cannonball and Richter get written out. But the Adam Polina art. Gorgeous. Don't sleep on that. One of my favorite artists. This is also where the Shatterstar and Richter as a couple vibe is first. Really, like it's there in the Niciasa stuff if you look for it, but not necessarily on purpose on Fabian's part. He said that he wanted Shatterstar's feelings to be unrequited. That was his like intent. But then Loeb really pushes right. that relationship more, which we'll get into in June for the Queer Characters Month when both Richter and Shatterstar will be featured. So look forward to that. 
But yeah, in 1997, John Francis Moore takes over. He picks up a bunch of Nicias' plots that had been kind of dropped in the lobe run, like... Rainfire. Yes, and Danny's role as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. infiltrating the MLF. He reveals that she's been working undercover for S.H.I.E.L.D. and that her whole thing in the MLF has been a deep cover operation. Then it all leads kind of into Operation Zero Tolerance, and the team disbands after that event for a while. Cable and Domino and Richter and Shatterstar and all those characters just kind of go away. The cast members who are left, it's like Warpath, Siren, Boom Boom, who's now calling herself Meltdown. I don't like most of her later cuttings, but Meltdown is very funny because like the pun is good because she's always having a meltdown. Sunspot and now Danny, and they go on like this road trip across the country, which is like just this very different direction for the book. It's generally regarded, I would say, as the strongest X Force run of that 90s title. It's underrated, I think. It's really fun because it gives them something to do. I think the problem coming out of Age of Apocalypse is they just move back into the X-Men and they're just another X-Men team. Right. Like there's no, they're not a paramilitary squad anymore. They're not at odds with the X-Men anymore. You know, Cannonball graduates to the X-Men. Like there isn't a ton for them to do as characters. So you need kind of, I mean, what's interesting about X-Force Road Trip is that it's in many ways kind of a prequel to the Zeb Wells New Mutants run, right? Like it makes them the New Mutants again. Yeah. In a way, but it, it just doesn't change the title. There's all that stuff with Warpath and his tribe that was massacred and yeah. Risqué, who's like his Catwoman character, and she's fun. She's finally back. Thanks, Krakoa. You know what this era is? It's like, if the New Mutants was high school, my field X-Force forward to them moving back into the X-Men was college. Yeah. This is their like backpacking through Europe, but it's just the United it's States. It's the gap year era. after college. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. They end up moving to San Francisco. That's when Bedlam comes in, the new character. And I think Cannonball comes back around then. The big thing for this episode that's important is that this is when Skids suddenly reappears. Moore did this with a couple characters, New Mutants characters, who had been dropped. Karma, for example, shows up during the road trip at Burning Man. And this is where it's revealed that she's a lesbian. And it's kind of a joke. It's like, where's Karma been? Oh, finding herself. And now she's a shaved head that she's dyed pink and she's gay. And it's like, just revisiting her. Skid similarly is revisited. As you noted, Jordan, she has chosen to completely abandon the whole mutant thing. It's sort of a mechanics before mechanics, right? She, like Kitty will later do, doesn't tell her friend she's a mutant, enrolls in college in Boulder, Colorado, majors in bioscience or something, and is like, I have a 3.8 GPA. I don't do this anymore. Like, I'm trying to be a regular person. They make an effort to tell you how good her GPA is. Like, that's yeah. what's at stake here. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I think it's a narration box that it's like her GPA. I think it says it's a respectable 3.8, which I thought was funny as like, you know, someone who did not have a GPA that good in college because I partied too much. And Skids, you know what? She's had her party years. She ended up in a bunch of cults and her boyfriend got murdered in front of her. So she's over it. But yeah, she is like, I really don't want to get dragged into all of your shit. Don't call me Skids. My name is Sally. I just really don't want to be involved. But when they're going across the country and they stop off in Colorado, she lets them stay with her for a little bit against her better judgment. And of course, they all end up kidnapped. And this is where Locus, the MLF's teleporter, returns abruptly black, never explained. She was a white woman in the early 90s and then reappears as a black person. Love that for her. 
actually think why they did it, this is like my conspiracy theory. There was a really intense fan theory around the time that Moonstar was in the MLF as like what's going on with her, that Locus was actually Ilyana. Mm. It was like Danny and Ilyana are like planning something together. And I think that to disabuse people of the notion that Locus was Ilyana, they were like, she was never blonde. She's black. She has Afro puffs. Mm-hmm. It's a very cute design. It just looks nothing yeah. like the character who existed previously. Anyway. My my theory is that Tempest was also on the MLF at that time. Tempo, yeah. Or Tempo, I mean. And I think they got, they mixed up those characters. I think that's entirely possible also. But whatever the case may be, Locus and Rainfire capture everybody and Skids's force field and Locus's teleportation power interact in like a non-compatible way that is like an energy disruption. And the two of them wind up teleported to Latveria. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. Where they are captured and brainwashed by the demon sorceress Pandemonia. Do not worry about it, although she's fun, but like truly... You don't have to worry about it. She's like a succubus from hell. I don't know. There was a lot of hell stuff in this run. Long before Peter David sent X-Factor Investigations to hell a bunch, X-Force and this like, there's um a whole arc where Blackheart is like tormenting Strife's immortal soul after his death and Warpath has to come to turn. I mean, it doesn't matter. The point is, this is another one of those magic moments. And the day is saved because Danny has befriended the sorceress Jennifer Kale, who's a Ghost Rider character. I would love to see her interacting with the X-Men again. I've always liked when magic characters are sort of on the periphery of the X-Men. I love Amanda Sefton. I like a Jennifer Cale Day moment. Tripper, yeah. Yeah, Day Tripper is the best. I'm a big Day Tripper head. I like her so much that I don't care that she dates her brother. <laughs> it's very weird, but Nightcrawler's so lovable, you don't question his decision. I love how weird it is, though. I've talked about this a lot on this show. Like People are like, don't you think that's weird? I'm like, I absolutely think it's unbelievably weird. I think that's part of why it's interesting. And like the characters know it's weird. They talk about it being yeah. weird, and I like that. Yeah. Have you ever had this? I've had a reoccurring nightmare, even into my late 30s, that I'm in college and I'm showing up for a test or something that is a class that I... I supposedly have taken, but I don't remember any of it. Mm-hmm. my first time in that class. Very normal anxiety dream, yeah. I feel like that's exactly what happens to Skids here, where one minute she's in college, and then she disappears, becomes a brainwashed sorcerer, magic person, and then she goes back to college, having missed a semester. Yeah, and this is kind of like also the X-Men anxiety dream version of that dream, because for Skids, a nightmare where she's back in high school is like being forced to do superhero things again. Because that was her teenage years. (laughs) And she's like, I got away from that. God, I'm being attacked by a demon sorceress and I haven't read any of the material beforehand. I wasn't prepared for this. I haven't been in a danger room in a decade. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. Pandemonia is defeated by Danny and Jennifer Kale through magic. Danny's getting more in touch with her like Cheyenne mysticism at this time, sort of in the way that Forge always has been in touch with that. Yeah, actually, I think Danny and Jennifer would have fun. Also, Jennifer Kale is bisexual and could help Danny come to terms with her whole deal so that Danny and Karma can finally date. That's my hot take on that. But in any case, Skids vanishes into the night after this storyline and pops up in Extreme X-Men. This is during the Morrison era and Morrison established X-Corporation, X-Corp, which has locations all around the world and is sort of being picked up now by Teeny Howard in the new X-Corp book. But in this period, it was just kind of like, if there's an obscure X-Men character we're not doing anything with, they're part of X-Corp Mumbai or Paris or, mm-hmm. you know, Rio de Janeiro or whatever. And they would just pop up for cameos when 
the main X-Men teams were in one of those locations. So the LA team is led by Sunspot and includes skids among the numbers this is where as you noted she gets a truly heinous haircut she's in an otherwise pretty nice redesign i mean it's the new x-men the morrison era yellow and black uniform with the trench coat and she looks pretty cool in it but for some reason she has pigtails and like not just pigtails but they're like baby doll pigtails like she looks like a toddler they didn't look like she was like she looks like a like a raver club kid like she should have like a pacifier like a pacifier hanging her neck because she's just rolling the entire time that this is happening yeah and and igor cordy's art who i who has done amazing work on x-men and some really bad work yeah makes her look like she is rolling the whole time the way he draws her i would say i'm more of a a cordy defender than most i i think but he will readily tell you that his work on x-men is not his best work he was so rushed a lot of it was fill-in work he had to rush and do a bunch of fill-ins he was filling in for i think laraka on extreme he was filling in for quietly on new x-men and there's that one I, I always like the thing I want to defend him on always is there's that one splash page of Emma Frost where she looks disgusting, like sitting in the chair, mm-hmm. like come to Emma. One. And everyone's like, this is the worst drawing ever. And the thing is, I'm like, no, she's supposed to look creepy there. Like she's being creepy. It's meant to be, ooh, Emma. Like it's meant to be so sexual, it's not appealing. Like that. And I think he right. actually really understood the assignment with that splash page. <laughs> but. It is very ugly to look at. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, this arc on Extreme, not his best. Uh, this is around the same time that Mask actually is popping up at Extreme. It's interesting that Mask and Skids don't show up in the same arc of Extreme, but Mask has that whole arc where he gives Callisto tentacles and he uh, actually, I'm using male pronouns because Mask usually does, but in this arc, Mask's power has evolved so that Mask can reshape their own form and they have decided to start living as a very beautiful woman which is an interesting oh i didn't know that that's really yeah it's like basically mask turns himself into marilyn monroe and is walking around like running the arena and this whole thing and that's been completely dropped and right after this story mask goes back to just looking like mask using male pronouns but i think that with mask on krakoa i mean again it just comes down to like like, I don't know, I think that that character is gender fluid in a way that could be interesting, but it's a lot like Mystique, where it's like, this is an evil character, and I don't know if you want to make right. that, like, your minority character. I'm going to text Jerry after this, because I bet if he was reminded of that, that would be something he'd be very excited to explore. The- yeah, and Jerry is, Jerry's great. Jerry did this show, I love Jerry. Jerry, if you're listening, because he does listen sometimes, Jerry, if you listen, that should come back. But yeah, I mean, even if it was just explained as like that was a power boost or something that I didn't get to keep, but maybe like presenting female is something Mask really wants to do. Who knows? I don't know. Story potential there. But the point is, that's a different arc. Skids is in this arc where she's back with the X-Men again. She's in X-Corp. I guess she decided because she was exposed as a mutant to her classmates, right? During that whole X-Force arc. So I guess she's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm stuck. Like just when I think I'm out, they drag me back in. I guess I might as well. Also, maybe she's like, I got turned into a thrall by a demon sorceress. Maybe I should train in my powers again so that that doesn't happen to me. This is when the Elias Bogan storyline is happening. Truly, don't worry about it. It doesn't actually matter. But Elias Bogan is controlling some of the X-Men. And there's a very funny moment where Skids is fighting Bishop, who's being mind controlled. And Bishop, like, spins her around. And because her force field has no friction, she just, like... (laughs) She's like an infinite loop. She just, yeah, he like attaches something to her that keeps her going and she just spins and spins and spins and spins, which is funny. And then right after that, the decimation hits. M-Day, House of M. 
And she's one of the 198, which is like, there was a miniseries where it's like, here's all 198 mutants that are left. They named them all, which was crazy bold to do. Like, we're not going to wait and see who we need. We're going to tell you all 198 that are left right now. Now, that led to it turning out that there are actually more than 198 because there were clearly a few they forgot. And they were like, oop, this one just wasn't counted or whatever. But for the most part, it's about 200. Uh, I hated this because I've said this a million times in the pod, so I'm sorry if you're a loyal listener, but I hated this whole development because to me, the minority metaphor of the X-Men is so important. And once it's only 200 people, that's not a statistically significant minority. It sort of broke the metaphor and it became much more about this is a specific group of 200 people who for some reason everybody wants to kill. And it's not and they're quite all, the same thing. They're all and they all live together X-Men. in it's, the same, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's all Cyclops and Wolverine. And, right. and of course, like, they threw skids in maybe just to be like, look, it's random. You know? Yeah, and she's, she has to share a tent with Magma, which I think is really funny because that's like another yeah. character that it's like, we do not care about this character, which, you know, I'm fine with that. Ooh, have you done Magma yet? No, my joke is that episode 500 will be Magma because there's just so much to unpack with Magma, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to her eventually. I love Magma. My thing with Magma is just that, like the whole concept of the character is so outrageously racist. There's really no getting around like... Oof, yeah. All of it. <laughs> so, like, New Roma. New Nova Roma is a keep, mess. Like, or Nova Roma. They keep retconning it and it gets worse somehow. It gets worse like, every so. single time that they do something to it. And it's like, please just let's never speak of it again. And then they're like, what can make Magma less problematic? Oh, what if empath is her lover well that another problematic wild yeah truly wild anyway all the 198 are hanging out sort of as refugees at the x mansion and val cooper is like having sentinels patrol the grounds because she's their friend you know it's like it's for your own protection everybody classic val giant towering symbolic (laughs) versions of hate right your history will will help you yeah hard time classic val Skids is just like pretty miserable because, again, as we've noted, she would have been thrilled to be one of the quote unquote unlucky mutants to lose her powers. Meanwhile, most of the world's mutants are miserable and suffering, and she kept hers and doesn't want to be here. Apocalypse shows up and he has his new famine make them all hungry, and then he offers his blood. This is an arc you really don't have to worry about, but basically, he wants them to drink his blood. It's weird. <laughs> Skids is like, yes, I'm in. Take me away. And Karma tries to stop her. Like, you're going crazy right now. But when the X-Men are like, Apocalypse, get out of here. Skids is like, hmm, actually, instead of being like a rat in a trap here, I would rather go with Apocalypse. But she ends up staying. And that's kind of it for that arc. There isn't really a ton right. to it. They say like it's Famine's fault, right? She's acting yeah, like it's like, yeah. it's honestly, it's just like, she's just there. It's not really a skids beat specifically. It's just like she happens to be a character who exists. And this is where she starts wearing a new outfit that she wears for a while that I don't really like particularly. She looks like Charlie Brown. It's like yeah. this yellow dress. This is Brubaker X-Men. It's a yellow mini dress with like a black. It's kind of like actually the top of Megan's costume like the Alan Davis design where the black M is like over the green, but here it's sort of like a Chevron triangle pattern on top of her yellow dress. It's just not interesting. And I'm a big defender of the Marvel girl mini dress, but here's the thing. The Marvel girl mini dress works because you have the boots, you have the gloves, you have the mask, you have like accessories with it. This is just very plain. So I was like, not my favorite. She ends up leaving. She's like not with the 198 anymore. And she turns up as part of, of all things, Mask's new group of Morlock terrorists. 
mask is attacking humans and trying to agitate. And it's all because a Morlock called Quirty, who was a precognitive, she was depowered in the decimation. But before that, she wrote this book of prophecy. And this was kind of funny because we just got done with the whole Destiny's Diaries plot. And it's like, must we do this again? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, Extreme X-Men was all about like, let's hunt down the prophecies of the diaries and all that. And they had just burned them all up like in Messiah Complex. And we're like, we're done with these diaries. And then this shows up and it's like, hey, wait, another diary by another precog. But basically, Skids is participating on these terrorist attacks. The X-Men are like, what the fuck, Skids? And it turns out that she is, much like Danny was in the MLF, an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Let me ask you something. Do you feel like in Westchester, they have like a, a shield recruitment. They must, thing. Like right? At the, at the bus terminal where they're like, hey, where are you going? Do you have a minute to, to hear about shield? It's like at the key food in Bedford. Like you're just like, you're there, you're buying like a 12 pack of Diet Coke and suddenly like Nick Fury wants to talk to you about a job. This though made sense to me. Danny Moonstar as an agent of shield did not make sense to me. It was not in keeping with her character. She's very anti-authoritarian. She's very skeptical of the American government. That's Danny's kind of whole thing. So it didn't really work. I mean, that was a retcon to get her out of the MLF plot after Fabian wasn't able to finish it out the way that he had intended to. That doesn't quite work for me. Skids, as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., makes perfect sense. It is a lot like when Bendis had Dazzler be an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. briefly. It's like these are characters who have often resisted being part of the X-Men thing, who were more interested in being normal in Skids' case. Or with Dazzler, it's like she was always close with the Avengers. She always had more of a broader Marvel Universe thing as opposed to being like an X character outside of Claremont taking her on after her solo book ended. But the Dazzler solo book was all about her interacting with the Avengers and fighting the Enchantress and all that stuff. But also... With Skids, and it's like she's always looking for where she belongs. Like, that's her right. story. If she's burned her bridges with the X-Men, well, here's a place I could go. And, like, what greater cult to join next than the U.S. government, right? So exactly. that- <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a character development that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Again, my one real point of resistance is that she has always been such a fashion-forward character, and I think that her outfit is terrible. But that's like really the only yeah. uh, the only big quibble I have with it. In the end, she proves that she's more loyal to mutants than she is to Shield. Like we're in this post-decimation thing. After losing her powers herself, the dream for Skids is for the minority metaphor to break down completely, is for mutant as a status no longer to be something relevant to her life. And so she kind of embraces that and is going to be like any other superhero now and work for S.H.I.E.L.D. and do all this stuff. But once Mask is defeated, she takes the book of prophecy that Mask has been using and Storm is like, oh, she's going to give that to S.H.I.E.L.D. or whatever and it'll be taken care of i guess and instead she finds magneto who had lost his powers in the wake of the decimation magneto is mentioned throughout the book of prophecy as an important leader of mutant kind in the future and it says that he is still a mutant and she's like i could lose everything just from talking to you right now but i need you to have this so that you can read it because you still have a role to play and i do believe that like mutant kind has a future as far as I know, this has never come up again, but it's nice to think of it, perhaps, as a prophecy about Krakoa. Oh, yeah. 
And it's a nice thank you for like, by the way, also thank you for doing using your magnetic power. For unbrainwashing me that one time. Yeah. Yeah, you know? Now we're even. Right, exactly. Like she repays Magneto for that. And it sets him on the path that he's been on for a long time that has made him into a really heroic character again. I mean, you know, some people don't see Krakow as very heroic. I think they're wrong. I think there are problems with it, like with any nation state, but Mm -hmm. I think it is the way forward. They're purposeful. Yes. Yes. They're not reacting anymore. It doesn't have to just be. I mean, Skids' life, if you look at it, is an endless series of tragic things happening to her. And Krakoa, for mutant kind generally, but also for Skids by extension, as we now know that she's there, which means presumably she has resigned her S.H.I.E.L.D. commission, is mutants taking agency and making a decision about what they're going to do with their future that isn't beholden to asking permission or to letting human kindness decide what is to be done with them, or lack thereof, obviously. So... I would love to dig more into the character now. But that's really sort of her last story. She pops up during the Secret Empire stuff, like in a cameo there. And then she had that arc again as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. in Rosenberg's mini. Tales of Suspense. Tales of Suspense, yeah. She's fun in that. But again, like she mostly just like appears to die and then doesn't actually die. Like it's not. She's back in her good outfit. So that's nice. She's back in the. It's an updated version, but it's like the yellow outfit with the blue jacket which you again had her wearing in your cameo. And I think that catches us up to the present. What did you think of The Tales of Suspense? Did you like that book outside of like the moment where we yeah, thought Skids was dead? I remember it being a really fun buddy comedy. I think it was like one of my favorite Marvel books by Rosenberg. Yeah. But we did skip one Skids appearance. Did we? What did we skip? It is The Amazing Spider-Man and the New Mutants. It was a comic book given out produced in cooperation with the National Committee for Oh, back in the 80s. Yes, 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 yes. The PSA comic. Go into it. Go into it. Because, yeah. I, I mean, I, I own it. I can't remember. I like buying these weird oddities off eBay. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's very well-intentioned and good. And now talking about Skid's background, it kind of makes sense, you know, why she was chosen. Right as the new mutant to be represented in this with her with her history. Yeah, and to talk about child abuse. And there's that great, there's like a PSA page where it's like Spider-Man and Skids talking directly to the reader yes. who's imagined as a child, right? And they're like... It's giving you tips. Yeah, she's like, no one ever has the right to hit you, stuff like that. Yes. So that, and that was probably around her new mutants era because it looked mm-hmm. like that Rob Liefeld costume. The other thing that my biggest memory of her, and I forgot to bring this up earlier, was... I had this Art Adams poster that said mutants on the top. And it was every X character from 1988. It must have been like right after. I uh, love that. Exterminators because like WizKids in it. Mm-hmm. And it's everyone. And I used to study that. And I remember Skids being in there. And that was kind of one of my earlier memories of her um, was that was that mutants poster. A great, great poster. If you look it up, it's what I use on my Twitter I don't know. What, what do you call the big thing when you check on someone's profile? Cover image or whatever? The banner, cover, I guess? Yeah. Header image? I don't know what exactly we call it. They're cover yeah, images on I Facebook. I call them on Twitter. It's one of my favorite X-Men images. I just thought of, it's not a Earth 616 story, but there's another Skids appearance in the 90s that's really wild in an issue of What If by David Michelini. It's like, what if Magneto 
ruled the mutants or whatever. And basically the acolytes are having sort of like an internecine civil war conflict. And at the same time, Skids is giving birth to her child with Rusty because this is in like a timeline where Rusty didn't die and they stayed with the acolytes. This is a very weird story and I'm glad it's not canon. But basically Hank McCoy analyzes the baby and discovers it's a new species called Homo Ultima that can like choose its mutant power. And the acolytes decide that it's a threat to mutant kind because it's this new being. And so Amelia Vogt murders the baby, which is wild. Yeah. Like she asphyxiates him. And Rusty's kids are devastated, obviously, and like leaves the acolytes. And it turns out at the end that Magneto faked the whole test result so that the acolytes would be united again by a common enemy. It's like very Ozymandias and Watchmen, but like with baby murder, very weird, very out of character Magneto. So I'm glad it's a what if. Yeah. Very in character for Rusty and Skids who can't catch a break. Can't catch a break. It's like, oh, your baby gets murdered. And uh, that's your only role in this story, by the way. Like, it's like, okay, cool, great. <laughs> That, I think, sums up all the skids that's fit to print. What made you put her in an ambassadorial role in Krakoa? Um, I, I kind of liked the idea that people are, are kind of doing different things there. You mm-hmm. know, like, that. you know, Blob works the bar and, right. uh, or the cantina. So I liked the idea that she would want kind of some sort of purpose. Like, she'd be, she's always looking for her purpose, right? So mm-hmm. she would probably ask for a job and be really excited about it. Right, because on Krakoa, you don't need to have a job. There's like no actual capitalism going on if you stay on the island. So, you know, you only need a job if you want to go out into the human world again. But there's also people who are going to go crazy if they're just in paradise all day without something to do. And I think Skids is definitely one of those people. Right, like Warpath is a gym teacher now. Right, yeah. Yeah, and and I liked the idea that... Rusty's got to be so low on the resurrection protocol list. See, you would think that Gene and Scott, this is actually a question I've had. You would think that Gene and Scott would have fast-tracked Rusty for resurrection. I don't think anyone's thinking about Rusty. It's just odd, right? No, but like he was, you know, it it really just goes to show Scott and Gene were not used to that young ward of the X-Men thing because Kitty Pride comes in after Phoenix dies. So Scott leaves, Gene's dead the whole thing of like, we have these teenagers around by the time X Factor rolls around, they're like, Oh, I guess we should take care of them. But they don't, especially like they just sort of send them to boarding school at some point. Well, it's also (laughs) in Scott's history to kind of forget to abandon children. Yeah. He does that. To abandon children. Uh, And, and, I never want to speak ill will of Scotty Summers. He's my favorite character in all of fiction. Love that for you. Ever. As a Madeline Pryor head, I am happy to criticize Scott. Yes. But his flaws are what I like about it. Obviously, I think that's an inexcusable thing. I love Captain Britain. Yeah. Like, and first of all, Captain Britain, like, is a flag suit character, which is always messy to begin with. He also, talking about Brian, was just the worst guy. And that's what was fun yeah. about his book and then about Excalibur. He wanted to be really good, but he had so many character flaws that he wasn't dealing with. And the ultimate resolution of that character arc has actually been, it's interesting, Brian and Scott are both now in a very similar position, which is just being dads now. Yeah. And I think that for both of those characters, I mean, Cyclops is now leading a new X-Men team with Gene, but Brian in particular, it's like, I'm retired, essentially. My wife is going to go have adventures. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, they both kind of needed to accept, like, I'm not really the right standard bearer for the world. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not someone who... You don't need me to be making these decisions. I should be raising my children. Yeah. It's a character growth arc. Right. And uh, they both sort of step aside for their wives on some level. 
and it's what Claremont wanted to do with Scott. That's why Madeline Pryor exists. Like he was supposed to go retire and have a family. And uh, I like that Brian's gotten to do that. I think that Betsy, Betsy's my favorite. Betsy and Emma Frost are my favorites. And Great character. Betsy now and in the 80s. Like I was very not into the ninja Psylocke of it all. And I'm really, really, like really- hooded, hooded Psylocke yes. with the cape and the armor. And even as a kid, I thought that the like, she got turned Japanese was like a very weird storyline. And it only got worse as it aged and I aged, right? So yes. I'm very, very glad that Psylocke is now, Kanon is now her own character and is amazing in Hellions. Zeb Wells is writing the shit out of that character. But yeah, no. so I love Betsy and Emma. And while I love Storm, because like, who doesn't love Storm? Yeah. I've never identified with Storm because Storm is like a real good person. Like Storm is like a really upstanding, heroic character, even at her worst, you know? And I've always felt myself more drawn to these characters particularly these women who are sort of seen as like the bad one who like aren't you know who who are morally suspect who fail a lot who get their shit rocked because they got arrogant like it's you know i find that very relatable whereas with storm i'm just like yes queen like do it you know i love you i'm obsessed with you but like i don't see myself in her you know what i mean yeah well, I think the characters that you you look at as, you know, almost like hero worship are rarely the ones, right, that you relate to. Rarely the ones you identify with, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I want to be Storm's friend. I don't think I am Storm. Like, the audacity of such a thing would be... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I know. I know I'm not. I know I'm not on that level. I'm much more like sitting around like Betsy or Emma being like, so I should be good, right? My instinct is to be selfish. But I guess I should be a hero. I guess... And Skids is like that. Skids just kind of wants to be left alone. I think that the idea of her as kind of an ambassadorial person was interesting because she does have government work experience. And also she was that runaway kid. And a lot of the people showing up on Krakoa now must be runaway mutant teens because, I mean, the children of the Atom want to be this, like want to run to Krakoa and can't because they're not really mutants as far as we know. Right. But I imagine there are lots and lots of people just like her who now, instead of running down into the sewers, can run through a Krakoan gate and just show up. And it makes a lot of sense that Skids would be one of the people helping them acclimate. Yeah. So I liked that. I thought it was a natural place for the character. Well, the other thing that's very Skids about that appearance is she quits it at the very end of the scene. She does. Yes. She's like, you know what? I'm over yeah, it. Yeah. And that's a very Skids thing to do as well is to move on <laughs> from one of her jobs. Now she's on the sword station. Yeah. We haven't seen her yet, but she's apparently there and i like that because just stop going to space sally nothing good ever happens to you in space <laughs> she's like maybe this time it's again it's like maybe this is the one i mean the marvel fans who don't like Krakoa are like it's a cult and maybe this is the cult that skids yeah. could finally be happy and this cult feels right for her i like this cult right for her, and too. maybe this is the space station that she finally can like not be tortured or killed yeah. on <laughs> I would like to see more for her. I'd love to see her doing stuff in S.W.O.R.D. I would love to see her doing stuff with X-Force. Again, she has espionage experience. Her mm -hmm. power set is interesting. She could also be interesting showing up in Marauders because the Morlocks have become so prominent in that book, as we yeah. were talking about. I'd love to see her in Madripoor with Mask and Bliss and all these people who were her enemies. Like, they were from the other faction of Morlocks that tried to kill her, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that she infiltrated on behalf of S.H.I.E.L.D. I bet they have something to say about that. You know what I mean? So yeah. that would be interesting. If you could, like, write the Skids Prestige miniseries, what 
would you want her to do? Unless you want to pitch uh, it and I shouldn't ask you, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's funny. Normally I'm, I'm so much more like I come at everything from a character level. Like what, mm-hmm. do, what do I want to put her through? But the thing that I feel like is so untapped for her. And, and usually it's the thing I'm least concerned about is her powers. I think yeah. with, like it, it reminds me of like how for years people were like, oh, Invisible Woman. Is right. She is a Sue Storm type. They should do like yeah. a Sue Storm thing with her. And Sue Storm obviously became very powerful in the 80s after being a not powerful character. Yeah. Let her tap into all this rage and trauma that she's experienced her whole life and let her be more of a Wolverine type on a team. That'd be fun. Push her power to an extreme and, and get really creative. Let skids cut loose. Yeah. Let her cut loose. Let her come into her own because she's always like, again, people have played her as a defensive character with her powers and also with her attitude. She's always reacting. She's never pushing her own story. Well, that's why I think Boom Boom pushed her out because Boom Boom was a proactive character and Skids was a reactive character right down to their powers. Boom Boom blows things up. Skids protects herself, you know? And so I think, I mean, first of all, it'd be fun to get the gang back together and do a story with like her and Rusty who's resurrected, like what the hell's going on? And Boom Boom and Richter and Wizkid who's in Sword now. That would be kind of fun. Have them have like an adventure together as adults. You also, when you're indestructible, you can be real reckless. And I think that having skids, especially now that Krakoa has made death not an issue, to have her being like, you can't kill me anyway, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And just really being brutal in the field, like using whatever combat training she had at S.H.I.E.L.D. to beat the shit out of people, breaking jaws like she did to Boom Boom in Executioner's Song. Like, I think that could be fun. You know, this is a character who survived on the streets as a 14-year-old. Like, emphasize how resourceful and unwilling to quit she is. Like, she's willing to quit a job, but she doesn't want to quit life. Like, she always, she's very tenacious. Yeah, she keeps going. She's a survivor. Yeah. Yeah. She's lost a lot. Well, the other thing, we talked about how much we hate her and Rusty together. You do a resurrection story where Rusty's brought back, but the last time they backed him up on Cerebro, he was MLF. So he's still <laughs> brainwashed and he's going to be burn Krakoa down and you finally get her having to go after the guy that she spent her whole life protecting and she has to take him down. And it's like their final breakup where she gets him unbrainwashed, but she's like, I'm not, I don't want to go back to how we were. Even if he's not MLF, he was like a diehard acolyte. And it would be interesting to like, even if you don't do that plot, which that could be really fun. I would support you writing that one shot giant size X-Men Rusty and Skids. Call me, Jordan. Yeah. Right, call me. <laughs> I also would love to see he's resurrected. Gene's like, good news. Rusty came up in the queue. And yeah. Skids is just like, I am not the girl who you dated. Like, I have been through a lot of shit since that happened. And we're just not. Yeah. We can hang out and see what happens. But I'm not jump Like, because he's like, the last thing he remembers, they were madly in love. And she's just like, hmm. Yeah, I'm I was good, shielded actually. I'm yeah, like, I don't need you. Yeah. I was the mind slave of a succubus demon in the mountains. I yeah. went to college. I've done a lot of stuff since you died, you know? Right. Because they were like high school sweethearts. And yeah. I would love a story where she's like, people grow apart. Like, I'm right. sorry, you know? She's like, I'm 25 and I'm not interested in the boy I was dating when I was 18. I'm just not. Yeah. You know? And then he's like, I guess I'll join the Marauders because I'm a Navy sailor. <laughs> <laughs> he should do something. Poor guy. He's just never, he just never stuck. 
the the only ex-Terminator less likely to get an episode than Skids is probably Rusty. I mean, I'm sure now that I'm saying that there is someone out there probably who is like a diehard Rusty Collins fan who wants to talk about Fire Fist. Yes. But, you know, I haven't met one before in my life. I'll say this. I, I spent very little time on Tumblr, but I was lo- I was loving just when I first got on for all the art that was on mm-hmm. there. And I remember, you know, I would search certain characters who I feel like, oh, you know, is there any fan art of this character? So I remember being like, oh, what about Rusty and Skid? Like, that's the most that's the most random two I can find. Yeah, yeah. And there is so much weird, erotic Rusty and Skid art. Really? I, like, I, I, I don't think I'm into this erotic wow. art section of, of these two. The XXX uh, Terminators. Yeah. Uh, so that's what came up if you search Rusty and Skid on Tumblr. I, I mean, I don't even know what Tumblr Probably is. Probably not anymore because they banned all the porn, right? But yeah, that would be... That's true. I wish I had witnessed. I mean, listen, <laughs> she put a lot of effort into bringing down that force field. So yes. once she got it down, I imagine they were they were ready to go. She put the effort into it. Love that for them. Well, <laughs> now's a good time, I think, to go into the reader questions. Thank you to everyone who wrote in about skids. Because <laughs> that's, I, I appreciate you. It's a big ask. Yeah. yeah. Andy writes, hi, Connor, an esteemed guest. Thank you so much for doing this brilliant podcast. It's really helped me get through this pandemic. I love when I get a chance to hear your take on characters I did not have an appreciation for. As a young gay boy, I took one look at 90s Ninja Psylocke and said, not for me. <laughs> I get that. But uh, I hope you're enjoying Kana now in Hellions. I think she's really great. Since this new era of X has started, I've been thinking about the Morlocks and their place on Krakoa, particularly in relation to the Marauders being on the island, meaning the original Marauders. Sally was one of the mutants that survived the massacre. She went on to be a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Yes, I skipped about two decades there. I was a little saddened to see Sally's time as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent treated as a joke or a don't worry about it because I think it would have been interesting to see her with divided loyalties. Sally's been a victim of her father, a victim of Mask, and a victim of the original Marauders. I don't realistically see her living on Krakoa if she has to share space or acknowledge the latter two. I feel like Sally would naturally dive into law enforcement as a possibly misguided way to feel in power. This leads to a broader question of how do the victims of mutant-on-mutant violence reconcile with their new reality? Also, I'd love for a writer to acknowledge the book Sally gave to Magneto way back when containing prophecies about Magneto's future. This could lead into a storyline where Sally and other Morlocks realize the person who wrote the book, QWERTY, the precognitive, has not been resurrected. Thanks again, Andy. So that would be fun to bring up the... Qwerty storyline again mm-hmm. now that precogs are banned on Krakoa because we've just seen in Way of X1 for example legions notice that Ruth isn't back like people are noticing that the precogs are not back right yeah so that could be an interesting place to take that I like the question you ask about what to do when your oppressor was another mutant and that is something that Krakoa is not super well equipped to deal with because the blanket amnesty policy means that Emma and Celine have to see each other all the time. Warren and Apocalypse have to see each other all the time. These characters who have been through so much with each other, not necessarily with Project Wide Awake or whatever, have to deal with that. And there is an issue of Hellions because Hellions is very concerned with exploring John Greycrow, formerly Scalp Hunter, of the Marauders, the OG Marauders who killed all the Morlocks, and his psychology and like why he became a killer and why he wants to be more than that. And there is that scene where like Sibylle and Tommy and those other Morlocks who were killed confront him on the beach in Hellions. And mm-hmm. we get the sense that like those Morlocks aren't happy. Also, Mask's Morlocks we know have chosen not to be on Krakoa because they clearly think it's a bunch of bullshit. So there's wiggle room that's interesting. I think that you could definitely have her bouncing off those characters in Madripoor in a way that would be interesting. She probably knows Madripoor really well because she was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent mm-hmm. and they're infiltrating that place all the time. 
the amnesty question is something we're going to have to deal with sooner rather than later. We have characters like the upstarts on the island. I mean, I was commenting last week that in the Women of Marvel issue, we see Roulette talking at the bar to Andrea von Strucker of Fenris. And I was like, you know, Roulette's been dead. She doesn't know who this woman is. But this woman is one of the upstarts, which is the group that got Roulette killed as part of their game. <laughs> so, like, there's a lot of complicated thing like in addition yeah. to all the other reasons you shouldn't chat with the Fenris twins that's just like on a personal level they're Nazis yeah, yeah they're Nazis <laughs> they're incestuous freakazoids like yeah. there's lots of reasons not to hang out with Fenris but it's just funny to imagine like Jenny Stavros not knowing who this woman is and they're just having a conversation at the bar and then it's like oh you're one of Emma's kids yeah we killed you well, I think you you tapped into it I I think you're selling me on put skids on the Hellion have her be the character who with Grey Crow. This thing. That would be interesting. Crow, and have her goal be: I want to kill him and erase him out of Cerebro, and then she gets <laughs> thrown into the hole with Sabretooth, and then we don't see her for another like fifteen years before some other writer who loves her is like Skids. Yeah, but it feels like you need to tackle that story. There needs to be a character at some point who says, "No, I refuse to be on an island where Mr. Sinister is allowed to walk around or somebody, you know, like who wronged them personally." Yeah. Like the fact that Scott and Alex and Gambit and all these people have just coped with Mr. Sinister being around or like, "Hey Monet, like Marius is just here. You got to deal with it." Like, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff you can do there and it's an element of Krakoa they haven't really gotten to yet. And I think that we're now, it feels like with x Corp and Way of X coming out now, we're like, we've established Krakoa, we're settled into what Krakoa is, now we can delve into Krakoan culture more. Right. And the cracks and fractures in yeah. the planning yeah. of this, which is what Nightcrawler is kind of doing. Exactly. Yeah. And Hellions, of course, is a book that's also exploring that because it's about the limits of the amnesty program. It's also, with the Madeline Pryor story in the first arc, about, like, Krakoa sometimes is unfair and, like, mm -hmm. uses arbitrary sort of authoritarian rulings to eliminate undesirables. And so if you're skids and you're like, why are the marauders here, the original marauders? I'd also love for her to, like, ask Kate Pride, like, so what's with the name? That's fucking weird to me. Like, what do you, what yeah. do you, what do you, and you're like, now, I liked in uh, Marauders when Callisto said to Mask, I mean, Mask said that about the new Marauders, was like, why? Because Callisto is hanging out with them, and Mask is like, you're cool with that? And Callisto's like, Kate Pride was just as hurt by the Marauders as we were. They almost killed her. So if she wants to take the name, I say, let her have it. Yeah. It was a good on-page moment of, like, explaining that, but. She was intangible for a year. She's she's Yeah, and years, almost so, yeah. discorporated. Like I get that the logic out of universe is just like it's a cool name, we're not using it, and they're pirates. But yeah. it, you know, it was it good to have that in universe moment. Yeah. yeah. It is funny that because Emma's team is called the Marauders, Sinister has now called his team the Hellions. I would like that to come on page where like yeah. he makes it clear that he did it as like to be petty because she he's like, You took my name, so I'm going yeah. to call my people your name. They should bring back the Exterminators then, because it's another one that was like a really bad name uh, with the history behind it. I think on Krakoa, you probably don't want a group called the Exterminators if you're trying to do diplomacy at all. Like, I mean, honestly, yeah. X-Force should be called the Exterminators, but, <laughs> you know. Or they they are the they are the exterminators. Like if you have an actual pest problem, that's true. Or like Krakow. yeah, you could send the exterminators to be. They, they could be a cleanup crew. You could figure it out. 
Pame Bravo writes, Hi, Connor and guest. I still can't believe there's a Skids episode. I'm so happy about it. I love Sally because I love Simonson's X Factor run, and Louise writes child and teenage characters so well. Her stories are very fun, so you end up just loving all those characters. Power Pack, The Exterminators, Her New Mutants. I'm sure you two have already talked about Exterminators by now, but I just need to say how much I adore that miniseries. I reread it all the time because it makes me happy. Okay, so on to my question. Simonson paired up her younger characters through her X-Factor run. Rusty and Skids, Richter and Boom Boom, Artie and Leech. Each of these duos had a different energy. The teenage couple, the fun, rowdy best friends, and the adorable little kids. But as the years passed, these duos took different directions. Artie and Leech wound up in Generation X in the 90s. Boom Boom and Richter joined the New Mutants and later both went to X-Force. Meanwhile, Rusty and Skids thought they were New Mutants too for a while. Then they ended up joining the MLF and became Acolytes. Why do you think that even if Skids and Rusty were introduced earlier than the other members of X-Factor and so had a longer and stronger development during that run, their romance even tried to parallel Gene and Scott's? They were the ones who ended up in comics limbo. Do you think this pairing up between characters that Simonson did was the reason Skids disappeared from comics after Rusty died? In this new Krakoa era, would you like to have Rusty back and have an Exterminators reunion? Thanks for the great podcast. Keep up the good work. So what are your thoughts? I mean, we've covered some of this already. They touched on something that we didn't cover, though, which is that they almost break up because they see Scott and Jean fighting, yeah. And they're like, what's the point? Like, you're doomed to be in a relationship. Like, if you're in a yeah. relationship, it's going to end in, in the X-Men. They're, right. They don't last. They were the same age we are now, and look at how miserable they are together now, is sort of yeah. like what Skid says. <laughs> and Which, like, facts. She's not wrong. Yeah. And Rusty is like, yeah, but I'm not Cyclops, and you're not going to get possessed by a space creature and kill people. So we're fine. First of all, Rusty, you wish you were like Cyclops, but he, <laughs> I think it's that thing of like, I think actually they nail it of like, we're too much. I don't want to be like Scott and Gene is that there's a lot of writers who have a real hard time with like, even though they're not married, they were married, you mm-hmm. know, in the comics. And they're like, how do, I don't know how to make this exciting. Without- Characters who were paired. Like the problem yeah. with having a couple, I actually think this is a problem now for Rogue and Gambit, mm-hmm. is that they are so established as a pairing to fans that there's not a lot of interesting stuff you can do with them anymore yeah. because you can't threaten the relationship or people will get really mad. Yeah. I liked the supporting role they've played in Excalibur as just sort of like a happily married couple who's doing stuff. I thought that was fun, but I am really interested to see where those characters go now that they're being split onto different teams. I think that that yes. is a good choice. I mean, we know Jerry loves writing Rogue. I know Teeny loves writing Gambit. I'm interested to see those characters having a little more room to grow, not as a matched set. And I think that Rusty and Skids, I mean, Rogue is a pre-existing character before the Gambit romance happened in the 90s. Rusty and Skids are basically introduced as love interests. Yeah. That especially Skids, who's yeah. brought in to be the girl who saves Rusty. Who saves him, right. It's hard because of how much the X-Men books are a soap opera. When you have closed off romantic options for a character, it becomes difficult to think of new storylines for them, I think, to some extent. I think that that is a problem we see a lot of characters fall into. I think that Jean Grey's storyline in the 90s is pretty weak because it's mostly just about her marriage to Cyclops. Like, I don't think, you know, I think it's tricky. Once Rusty has been killed off for like an emotional moment, then she's really screwed because she's never had an identity of her own outside of that pairing. Right. I think that's what really hurt her. And it was like, and her voice wasn't as fun or as exciting as Boom Boom. Right. So she doesn't have that to stand on like as much of a personality as Boom Boom. So it was kind of like, well, without, without the person she's been coupled with, 
no one knew what to do with her or then we need a random mutant to show up to react to something that's happening in the bigger kind of excellent right and she has a convenient power for cameos because you can knock her around and she'll be fine like and also it's a visual power because of the way her force field like kind of spreads out from her body like you know armor who has become a much more prominent character with as we said a similar power one of the reasons armor has really endured as a character is because Josh Cornelion and I talked about this last week in the Pixie episode. Pixie and Armor both really stuck around after their like moment was over. Their kitty pride moments. Yeah, yeah, but you can put them in the background of a group shot and everyone's like, oh look, it's Pixie and Armor because Armor's in her big red psychic mecha and Pixie has wings and is flying around. So you're like, it's them. You know, Skids, similarly, you can put her in a group shot with her force field going. And you're like, oh, that's Skids. I think they should put her beret back on. Yes. I feel like the 80s beret, you know, make it blue now and it can sort of match her little coat. I would love that. I would like a beret on her. There's too many blondes who are otherwise kind of indistinguishable. So like, it's good to give them visual signifiers. I, like Boom Boom always has sunglasses on basically. And I think that you should give Skids the beret. But yeah, I mean, Jonathan Dye then asks like, why do you think some characters from the O5 X Factor click and keep coming back, Boom Boom and Richter, and others just got written out or dropped like Rusty and Skids? I know some of it is wheezy leaving, but it's just kind of ridiculous how often it happened to them in particular. I mean, and again, I, I think that what we're identifying is that Boom Boom was a character with more potential. She wasn't locked into a ship and she was the more outgoing, dramatic character. And it was just an obvious, like, because she doesn't have this boyfriend character that she's stuck with, she got involved in a love triangle with Cannonball and Sunspot for a minute. Like, there was stuff you could do with the character. Richter similarly ended up being a love interest for Rain, which is insane to think about now, but that is yeah. the direction that they took those characters. So I think that it's because the romance plot being baked in with them already made it difficult to keep them around. I also think that just literally Liefeld was like, these two are boring, I'm getting rid of them. I mean, I think yeah. it really comes down to that. I feel like if you sat out the 90s, like the way she did, it's really hard to get back in. Very hard to come back. You missed the peak popularity yes. era. Yeah, and I think I'm shocked that she was never picked up by like Peter David in any X Factor run. Because yeah, you he she's like made for X Factor investigations. That would have been yeah. like absolutely a character you would think he would have picked up. Yeah, so I think that's the problem is like, you know, because like that could have happened to Madrox, but because of that X Factor run, you're like, oh, they, they gave him, they built on a personality that was kind of barely there, yeah. gave him something that made him a fan favorite, and now like Madrox can disappear for maybe a few years, but he's always going to come back, comes back, possibly lead a book, you know? Yeah, and Madrox also has the strength of that first Peter David X Factor, which people really love, that early 90s run. And so those characters, it's hard to keep them down. Similarly, like they always turn back up. Even like a character like Rain, who I think they have written into the gutter a million times, like they just have junked that character over and over. But yeah. she always comes back because she's a classic new mutant. And in the 90s, she was around. She was doing stuff. Rusty and Skids have the long shot and Dazzler problem, mm -hmm. where they're 80s characters who are pretty significant and then as soon as Claremont and Simonson leave they get dropped and that Jim Lee era that turned into the cartoon is the era of X-Men that most penetrated pop culture mm -hmm. those are the characters that lay people recognize if I ask my mother who doesn't know anything about the X-Men who are some X-Men she names like Storm Cyclops Wolverine like the people who were on the cartoon 
And then she'll know like Nightcrawler because Alan Cumming played him in the movie and he's blue. So he's like that guy, you know? And I'm saying this is my mother whose son has an X-Men podcast and whose husband is an X-Men collector. And she's not going to know who Longshot and Dazzler are, for example. Yeah. So I think that what you're saying about the 90s is really, really, really true. And that Boom Boom and Richter are the ones who got carried through. It's why I'm shocked that Ilyana has become such a major character because she also missed the 90s. Yeah. But in that case, it's because Bendis clearly loved the character in the 80s, reading it as a young man. And then when he got control was like, I'm pushing magic. This is magic's time. Yeah. And it worked. And she had one of the best arcs in all of X-Men. Like that character was like- Yeah, the, the 80s arc is yeah. perfection. So yeah. yeah, you bring her back. And then I really do think Zeb Wells is like, because when she first came back, I thought it was like kind of, ah, uh, but I think that Zeb Wells on New Mutants really reestablished the character. And then Bendis was just like, I'm putting her on the X-Men. I'm going to have Chris Botchler draw a new costume and we're going to just go. But you do need someone like that, a writer who has a lot of, I mean, look at what Hickman is doing with Sink from Gen X. That's a great example. That's a character who was nowhere for 20 years because they kill him off at the end of Gen X and then he's just done. Hickman loves Gen X. So now Sink is back. Like it really just takes, it just takes that. And so if you got to write a book, I'm sure you'd be like, yes, let's throw Skids in there and then Skids would be back. You know, like that's the, that's the bottom line is you just need, the character needs a steward. That's what Evan Narcy said on uh, the Dazzler episode. I think that that's really true. Mm -hmm. And particularly with X-Men teens, like the classes of students, you really need someone to be passionate about the character because after every writer introduced new students, there are now like 300 of them and standing out among the din, particularly when you are the blonde girl from Simonson X Factor who's not Boom Boom is just going to be harder. Mm-hmm. So she needs a champion. Levi Tompkins writes, Dear Connor and Jordan, I've always really liked Skids. She has a cool look and a really unique power. But wow, has she gotten the short end of the stick among the X Factor kids? My question is, why do you think those characters have become so divorced from the original five X-Men who were their caretakers? Even Boom Boom rarely gets scenes with any of those original X Factor members. Have writers just forgotten these relationships? Was X-Force so strong an influence that their ties to X Factor are negated in the popular consciousness? And you may love the pod. Definitely my fave cast going right now. And I truly value the Discord server. What a nice community thanks Levi well thank you the discord server is really nice and it's nice to have like a nice place to talk about comics I've been enjoying that I think I have an answer for that. yeah what do you think about this Jordan I think it's the problem isn't the kids I think the problem is Hank and Scott and Bobby and Gene Warren have the longest history with the yeah. X-Men so they have history with everybody. every character right yeah and it's it's really and like you know, I love those stories, but like that's not a place people go to. They go back to Dark Phoenix or they go back to, you know, early Claremont. Yeah, I think Simonson's X Factor is just an underrated book generally. Like it's just not a book that people talk about in the same breath as those other classic runs. Right. And in part, that's because it's born from editorial interference and people don't like that Shooter did that, right? Yeah. But that was the Bob Layton book. And then after a couple issues, Simonson shows up and is like, I've got ideas. Let's fix this. And she really does fix it. I mean, you know, but it always was the also ran book. There haven't been many collections of it. It's very hard to get it in trade. There's a lot of issues of it that are not collected at all. They're not even on Marvel Unlimited Mm -hmm. because they've never been collected in trade and so recolored for digital. So they're like not around. It's crazy because that Simonson art is is the Walt Simonson art, yeah, yeah, is stunning, and and her writing is fantastic, and it's like, it's a it, it is an underlooked run, and then 
the book it, itself after they leave is kind of inconsistent. Well, it definitely falls apart once Simonson is pushed out yeah. for sure. I mean, that's why they pivot it hard into the relaunch with Peter David, where it's like, yeah, this is just a totally like different 30 book. 30 issues later. Yeah. Yeah. No, before that, you have the whole, the baby's been infected with a techno-organic virus, which like, at least they got Claremont for that story. But yeah, you know. And it's a lot of apocalypse though. It, yeah. I mean, like most people just look at it and they're like, we got Archangel, we got apocalypse out of that. But I love those first, you know, 30 issues, I think. Yeah. I really like all of the stuff that ties into Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, and Inferno. I think all of that stuff is really great. I wish they would do a Simonson X-Factor Omni. I mean, include the latent issues, but do like those first five and then the Simonson stuff, like do it. I think they're hesitant because so much of it is event tie-ins. They don't make as much sense if you don't have, like the uncanny omnibuses end I mean, they're they're going to whatever they're about to do to tie it up between Uncanny Volume Four and Mutant Massacre, whether it's Uncanny Volume Five or I think it might even be like a Mutant Massacre prologue omnibus so that they can collect early X Factor, some of the other stuff. A lot of it is just, it's just not collected well. Also, like you're saying, these characters have so many relationships. Like there were people who didn't like that in the Cinegrace Iceman book, Bobby goes on a date with Richter because people were like, Bobby was his teacher once. And I'm like, okay, I get where you're coming from. On the other hand, there are like four gay (laughs) X-Men and nobody has put Richter and Bobby on a page together in 30 years. And they're a lot closer in age now because of the sliding time scale. And Bobby was never a particularly devoted teacher in the first place right yeah but it is something that has been pretty forgotten the fact that richter and boom boom in particular were gene and scott and hank and bobby and warren's like wards like in that kitty pride way in a way that like kate's relationships with wolverine and emma and storm are still really important to the character because they never stopped being important to the character yeah what you said at x-force is also really true like to most people richter and boom boom are just x-force characters because that book was really popular and the fact of the matter is late stage simonson new mutants and simonson x factor were never as popular as uncanny or as x-force later would become so i think it's just under read also yeah when skids would show up it was like what does uh cannonball have to say about this right gene or or scott yeah or how does this how do the the new mutants who really were only with them for like three issues issues. yeah three issues it was nothing plus inferno so yeah like literally like seven not even a whole zaladane knowing these people and now they're the ones that we have to even though like scott and gene are involved in the plot where rusty dies and we still just don't we've just never really revisited yeah it's a little that's really the last time that's brought up is yeah is Scott and Gene coming to save Rusty and, and like failing him? Yeah, but like it's never even when Scott and Gene are like going over their failures, also, which like they do sometimes, they never mention that. Yeah, you know, I will say though, I think there's such a thoughtfulness to continuity in the way it's being handled. Like you were mentioning the Marauder stuff and the Morlocks, that if it's going to happen now, now is when it's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, this is the most I have never felt so secure as an x-men fan in the creative team in charge of the characters i feel like there is a love and a care and that's not to say every issue is great and it's not to say that every decision is flawless i'm just saying pound for pound this era feels so good to me more than any other era i've personally experienced in terms of the care that's being taken with these characters they're looking at entire histories yeah looking you know from, from a step removed to see there are relationships 
Yeah, I don't think that this podcast would have taken off the way that it has, which I'm very grateful for, without that. Because the interest that new fans are now having in old continuity is something that's coming out of the Krakoa era, bringing all of these underappreciated characters back and referencing, without being comics about comics, being comics that are deeply enriched by a knowledge of the older comics, if you have it. You don't need it, but it doesn't hurt, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Last question. Gary from Dublin writes, Hi, Connor and guest. Huge fan of the show. I'm not going to do an Irish accent because my Irish accent is fucking awful. My ancestors wept. But I do sometimes. <laughs> when a British person writes in, I try to do a bad British accent. But Are you, I, you ever have to read like Banshee dialogue? I have. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I do it really bad when that comes yeah. up. But I, you know, you know, the Moira McTaggart episode, you should listen. It's a good episode, first of all, in my opinion. But also... I do a lot of Scottish and Irish mess that I, I'm like, I'm trying my best because people like the accents for the most part. I got some hate mail once about one of them, but it's fine. <laughs> Point is, listen, the public, what are you going to do? So Gary writes, huge fan of the show, but you know that already. It was a real highlight of each week for me when I was off work for three months recovering from a particularly bitchy pneumonia. I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm very excited for a Skids episode. I loved her since her first X Factor appearance, and I'm surprised that she never made it to an ongoing after Louise stopped writing her. I know she was never cool enough for Liefeld, but I thought she would have been picked up for an X Factor or Excalibur lineup at some point. That's what Jordan just said. But I think the fact that she's shown up every five years or so in small roles has actually given her a hint of living a fascinating life away from mutant mainstream, which now gives her a history rich for exploitation. I especially loved her as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. in Rosenberg's Hawkeye and Bucky mini. I'm sure you've discussed this, but where do you think she would fit into the Marvel Universe in a unique ongoing role? I have three ideas. One, as a core member of the team of mutants who don't want to live on Krakoa after trying it out. Maybe alongside Firestar and Justice or Purple Girl, those kinds of characters. Or, as a trained mutant spy, she would fit in well in X-Force. I imagine it would be fun having her roll her eyes at Quentin Quire in the field. If she went back to S.H.I.E.L.D., I would love Agent Blevins as a handler and love interest for Bucky the next time they give him a book. He's probably only about 30 when you consider the freezing. She's actually probably one of the few women who has a fucked up enough past to understand him, considering her own brainwashing, dead boyfriend, etc. Let's just not think too hard about her name. Lots of love, Gary. I like these ideas. Gary suggests calling that book of characters outside of Krakoa Exiles, which I think would be cute. People have suggested yeah. that before. I've also seen that suggested for a book about like Sabretooth in the pit, <laughs> which I think would be fun. <laughs> We've gotten into this a little bit. I think that Skids would like Krakoa. I think it is the home that she's longed for. I think that she has acted out in the past in the pursuit of finding that home when mutants didn't provide it for her. And now it's being provided. So I think she'd stick around at least for a while to see it through. But I would like to see her doing espionage stuff. I mean, if she's not on X-Force, I think it would be cool to have her be like a Krakoan liaison to S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. There's stuff you could do. I was going to ask you, do you think they would let someone be an agent of shield no or is that like that's a human concept i mean i think that you're too beholden to the u.s government and that that's a conflict of interest for Krakoa. they don't make people give up their american citizenship but you can't be working for a foreign government i don't think Actually, I'm really interested to see what they're going to do with Sunfire on the new X-Men team because Sunfire is a very nationalist. He's a flag suit hero like Captain America or Captain Britain, specifically with the Imperial Japanese flag, which is very charged. They've taken him out of that costume, I noticed, in the previews for that new book. And over the last 10 years or so, whenever Sunfire has popped up, it's been to emphasize 
him moving away from human nationalism and more toward helping out other mutants. So it feels like a natural evolution of the character. But I think that might be the character where they explore the divided loyalty of really loving your native country, but also now being Krakoan. Mm -hmm. And Skids is another character it would be interesting to do that with, because I'm sure that she, I mean, she seemed to like being an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. So if she gave that up to come to Krakoa, what's satisfying and fulfilling her now is an interesting question. What's interesting is there is no S.H.I.E.L.D. right now, I believe, in the Marvel Universe. See, I didn't even know that because I am so out of touch with anything that isn't X-Men. <laughs> you could have told me that, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. is around and Maria Hill and Nick Fury just had a time-lost baby. And I'd be like, sounds like that's accurate. Like, I, I have no way of... I think it's gone. So you could do something where Sunspot buys the rights to S.H.I.E.L.D. Like... <laughs> <laughs> buys the name and trademarks it and gives it to Skids and says, look, start a mutant shield. Start a mutant, like, Interpol. It's all yours. You own it all. Like, you're the one who's qualified to create our espionage team. X-Corp would also be an interesting place for her to pop up. She and Sunspot do have a bond. There is that, like, she was on his X-Corp team briefly in Los Angeles. I was just thinking it was brought to my attention after... Um, <laughs> Tony Oliveira and I on the Strife episode were like, what is Val Cooper up to? Like, the answer can't possibly be anything good, right? And then in Christopher Priest's new U.S. agent yeah, she's series, US she's agent. fucking the U.S. agent, which, first of all, like, that is the funniest. <laughs> that, like, that's perfect. I, I said, this is yeah. the most Republican sex ever depicted in a Marvel comic. <laughs> but... Now that she's doing whatever she's doing, and I wouldn't be surprised if she's involved with Orcus, with Gyrick, and all of that stuff, Skids and Val Cooper have kind of a past. That could be interesting. And Skids as like a Krakoan liaison to Val, the way that Val used to be the U.S. liaison to the X-Men, could be an interesting place to take that character. That's good. You just got me thinking with Orcus, put she's undercover there yeah have her go undercover like as an orcus operative under a false yeah. identity they probably have like mutant gene scanners at orcus but figure something out we've got a lot of superhuman scientists on krakoa find maybe a way field blocks that out you can have maybe that. the field blocks it or have forge invent something or you know who knows yeah. i would like to emphasize her espionage training because here's the thing about skids she was anti-authoritarian and hated the u.s government like the jump from skids of the 80s and then skids in the mlf too she's been gone for a long time and now she's an agent of shield it's not really explored on the page how that happened and it's a big character turn so digging into that could be interesting i think with Wizkid and richter at the most prominent they've been in a very very long time Wizkid certainly since he's never been prominent outside of that original simonson miniseries during inferno the time is right i think i, I mean i've been sad to see boom boom really not around as much this era she was factored into the Brisson New Mutants, and she was fun in that. I voted for her. Did you? I voted for Tempo, but I supported the Boom Boom agenda. I think Boom Boom's great, and she's never really... I mean, Boom Boom is great when she's allowed to be stupid and fun and silly. Like, I was not moved by 90s Boom Boom Boomer meltdown when she was, like, a serious character in X-Force. It, like, didn't do it for me. Yeah. They kind of just turned her into Skids, actually, after getting rid of Skids, which is, like, isn't the whole point that you kept the fun one? Let her be fun. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think Skids and Boom Boom should have an adventure. Let them do something That'd together. so fun to see them paired together. Yeah. Her trying to do espionage while Boom Boom... While Boom Boom fucks it up. First. Yeah. 
We know Boom Boom like is fluent in Russian because she like worked for the Mafia when she was like 13. Like let have them go to like Chechnya and do some kind of deep cover operation. Uh, and it somehow time travels and involved where they get sent to the 80s and they have to dress up in, in, in their, their costumes from back then. Yeah. yeah, But they're acting as if this is so old and they can't believe how far back in time. I really liked in Excalibur 20 when... Betsy and Conan go into like Malice's mind space and they show up in a club in Leeds in like 1985 very clearly <laughs> and yeah. it's just like we're not going to address when this is supposed to be because these characters are not supposed to have been alive in the 80s at this point. <laughs> the time scale makes it tricky. I, that is part of the problem for Skids actually is that her really fun original look was very fashion forward at the time it's the long shot problem like if you put her in it now she would look ridiculous boom boom they gave her a 90s makeover right and skids never got one yeah yeah so well jordan thank you so much for being my guest i had such a great time talking about skids with you i never thought we'd get we'd be able to dig this deep i can't believe how much that is the promise that is the promise of cerebro (laughs) I'd love to give you an opportunity now to talk about MODOK, which premieres on Hulu May 21st, and plug anything else you might like to plug. Tell the listeners where they can follow you on the web, et cetera, et cetera. Just take it away. Sure. Um, so MODOK premieres yeah, May 21st on Hulu, all 10 episodes. Um, it is our kind of adult animated comedy version of the character. I think he's very still very true to the Marvel 616 version, but obviously we get to t- take a more humorous look at at Modoc's life outside of of what we see him in the comics, his wife and kids, all of that stuff. Yeah, like where does Modoc go at night? You know, what does it what does it take to run AIM? Uh, is it is it a little more like a, a bureaucracy that drives him crazy? <laughs> and it's kind of like a little uh, behind the scenes look at, at the side of Modoc we don't get to see. Um, but it's really fun because it's a it's a story about a, a super villain who loses everything he he loses uh aim which gets uh, he runs it into the ground and basically a, a google-like uh corporation comes in and says we'd love to to buy aim and save it but we'll be super hands off and you can keep you know trying to kill iron man and take over the world we just want like a tablet by christmas we won't bug you mm-hmm. and of course it's the opposite of that he's he's answering to a board and hr and and it's a nightmare <laughs> and he, he loses control of it and at the same time he's having issues with his, his family I'm glad to see a push for AIM because AIM is a good all-purpose Marvel villainous organization, whereas like Hydra has all the Nazi baggage and yeah. it makes it tricky sometimes. But like AIM is just fun. They're just evil scientists. Like they're just doing their thing. There was a little link and we actually just retconned it out in our comics. Smart. <laughs> good, like, good, good choice. Keep the Nazis away from these Get guys. Get the Nazis out of here. Science. That's it. Yeah. Um, it's like that's not. No, you don't need that connection. So the show is is a, a midlife crisis story for a supervillain. Uh, it's about a guy who who loses his job and loses his family and has to kind of figure out what's important to him and what he's going to fight for. But of course, it's set across the Marvel universe, so it's big adventures in Asgard and all these other kind of fun locations with characters like Iron Man and Wonder Man and Fing Fang Foom and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. big Marvel storytelling, but with like very human relatable stories which i think is what marvel does best i agree that's why i love marvel and always have and particularly why i love the x-men i mean that's always what the x-men were right at least yeah. in the classic stuff incredible cast regular cast Patton oswald as modok amy garcia as his wife 
Ben Schwartz from Parks and Recreation and Melissa Fumero from Brooklyn Nine-Nine as his like annoying teenage kids. I think that's a really funny casting. Wendy McClendon Covey as Monica Rappuccini. I'm like a big Reno 911 head from back in the day. So that's, oh, yeah, me too. that's like a very inspired bit of casting. And I've always liked her. So I like when she gets to do fun stuff. We were writing Monica in the comic and like all I can hear is Wendy now. Like Wendy <laughs> is the character to me. I mean, everyone's very good in their roles, but like, I want them to let Wendy play that character in the MCU. Yes. Just let her do it. She'd kill it. Yeah. Let her dig into that. So funny. Everyone is. And then you have crazy guest stars too, right? Like John Hamm is Iron Man. And isn't Whoopi Goldberg playing like pound cakes from the grapplers? Because that's hilarious. Yes, she is. Uh, and uh, we, ch- we changed her origin for, for the story. We made her a mutant. I know oh, that's, fun. that's not the case, but... Uh, Listen, I'm fine with it. Why not? Let's yeah. let Pound Cakes... Uh... <laughs> I don't know why I'm being so defensive, like the Pound Cakes are going to come after Like, me. right, the, the enthusiastic <laughs> Pound Cakes fans, all yeah. 10 of them. The Grapplers are just one of the... And, like, apart from Screaming Mimi, who became Songbird on the Thunderbolts and became, like... Although, where is she at? She's, like, fallen off the map. Yeah. I feel like she's a Avengers character they should character. bring back. Yeah. She's one of the only Jews at Marvel Comics, yeah. which, like, given who created Marvel Comics, it's a little wild that there are, like, yeah. eight Jewish characters. People forget about Sasquatch, by the way. I choose to forget about Sasquatch. I love Sasquatch. Are you not an Alpha Flight guy? <sighs> I find him so... Yeah, I'm not an Alpha Flight guy. I'll just say... I, I think that the original Burn Alpha Flight is really good. I think the Mantlo Alpha Flight is demented. Yeah. <laughs> There's a character in there, a, mut- a mutant that I'm obsessed with that I want to write one day. Who? Um, mannequin. Oh. He's the most Grant Morrison character that Grant Morrison didn't ever invent. Wrote. Yeah, and didn't yeah, ever write. He, his power is that he can like bring ancestors into the present yeah. to help him fight. So he's got like a protoplasm version of himself, a caveman, <laughs> and like a future guy. And they all just come and help it because he doesn't have any of the powers. Right. I just think of like Goblin and the Dream Queen and all yeah. this purple girl who was literally 13 and like all of these men were flirting with like it's just very that's that's it's not my favorite yeah anyway i hope you get a chance to write mannequin and skids in a mini real soon i think that would be a lot of fun can you tell yeah i mean listen this is a podcast where zaladane comes up once an episode so far be it for me to tell anybody that their obscure favorites are not characters who deserve a 20 issue maxi series because i would happily write zaladin queen of the sun people the savage land nightmare hour for 50 issues so i'm not somebody to to question any of that well i should plug this then i think we i've talked about in some other interviews we have x-men characters we've got them yeah mr sinister is in it lila cheney we've got the brood queen and there's a few other big ones we haven't revealed especially at X-Men related location, I think. that That's exciting. Well, it's so fun now that, I mean, like, I, uh, I don't know, I wasn't crazy about Falcon and the Winter Soldier, just like did not, it was not for me. But when they went to Madripoor, I was delighted. They walk past a sign for the Princess Barb. It's like, oh, there it is. That's it. I was saying that we were all that Leonardo (laughs) Yeah, I literally just did it. I was like, it's, there it is. (laughs) Tiger Tiger is sitting in there smoking a cigarette right now. Like, it's time. Yeah. High town, low town. Yeah. God. Where is Tiger Tiger? I want to know what she's up to. She should come back in Marauders. She was in that run with with um, Karma, right? Yeah, with Karma's long lost sister, half sister, whatever. Yeah, she's yeah. got a lot of siblings. Karma has well, Karma's. Uh, I don't know if you read the most recent New Mutants yet, but it seems like we're doing something with yeah. Tran finally coming back. Yeah. Thank you again for being my guest. This was a lot of fun. I will definitely badger you into coming back at some point. 
and I don't think I'll have to badger too hard. No, I have a lot of characters I'd love to yeah, talk Yeah, yeah. Skids, I'm sure we could find some other ones. Absolutely. Why don't you tell listeners where they can follow you on social media? I am uh, Bloom Jordan, B-L-U-M, on Twitter and Instagram. So that's Great. the best place to find me. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes at CerebroCast.com, where you can also find a link to the Cerebro Fan Discord. Please don't bring any bad vibes. It's a pretty chill, fun space. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast. There are two bonus episodes every month at the $5 a month tier called the house of saladane the first episode was an ask me anything with listener questions the second episode which is up now as you're hearing this is a breakdown it's like a law it's over two hours of all 12 appearances of queen saladane of the sun people i do a lot of voices if you're a fan of my very very silly rogue voice there's a lot of rogue in those issues in the savage land so check that out Next week's episode is an exciting one. Teeny Howard will be returning to the podcast to talk about Monet Sancroix as part of the launch of X Corp, in which Monet is the female lead. I am really excited about that. I have been dreading this character because I love her and I don't want to get it wrong. And she has the most confusing history of any X-Men character ever. We may have a couple special guests in that episode also, so stay tuned for that. It depends on what I can get to happen in the next week or so, but I've got feelers out and we'll see what happens. Send your questions about Monet, her sisters, M-Plate, whatever, to Cerebrocast at gmail.com and T and I will try. Thank you so much for listening. As always, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to Three Hours about Sally Blevins. And until next time, everybody, bye. Bye. Thanks for having me. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.